Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is session number 59 as we continue our time in the back parlor there in the Prancing Pony. Uh, so we're, <laughs> yeah, you're right, Tony is pointing out that we're still in the same day uh, that they woke up in the barrow. That's true. It's really easy to for forget that, actually. Uh, you know, they wake up in the barrow and then run, run naked on the grass, and then they ride to the road with uh, Tom Bombadil and Fatty Lumpkin, and then, of course, get to the inn at night, and then, yeah, it's still the same, still the same evening here. Um, so, um, yeah, and Lincoln, you're right. It's especially easy to forget at the pace that, uh, that we've been moving through here. So yeah, I, I think uh, uh, this uh, that all that all seems very reasonable. Um, okay, so I, I, before we begin, just uh, uh, just a, a, a couple things. I wanted to first of all, kinda, I, I wanted to make a small personal announcement that was really fun. Uh, so on uh, Sunday, I uh, actually received my black belt in karate, which is like a major um, uh, accomplishment of mine. I just wanted to wanted to thank all of you for your support in my journey uh, to getting my black belt in karate because uh, you guys have been very patient with me as I've been like injuring myself in various ways and being late for class or or uh, or, or or whatever. So uh, anyway, uh, that's. Uh, uh, that's been that's been a lot of fun. So I just wanted to. I, I know I've been. Uh, you know there have been some some events along the way that uh, that you guys have been privy to. So I just wanted to thank you guys for uh, for b bearing with me uh, through that. So anyway, um, uh, yeah, exactly, Mad Violinist. I totally feel. It's you know never have I been more conscious of that. That you know now it's really time to to start beginning a course from the outside. Black belt seems like a, you know the end point, but of course I was comparing it. I was talking to my son, uh, my son who's not in in karate, and uh, uh, comparing it to getting your PhD. Right? You know, a lot of people you know feel like oh you know you've got your doctorate, like you've you've reached the top of the mountain. And of course, it's the same thing, right? You finish your graduate school training, and, and you know you're you're now uh, uh, all set to begin, right? You, you know your actual life of uh, of learning. So um, anyway, yeah, yeah, it's lots of fun. Anyhow, uh, so I also wanted to just uh, uh, to make a couple of announcements. Actually, I have a visual aid uh, for our announcements here today. Um, I wanted to, where did it go? Here it is. Uh, just kind of draw your attention. This is the events page. If you go to signumuniversity.org and click on events, um, you will uh, uh, you will see this awesome page with our link to all of our beautiful events pages. This is a great page to just kind of keep your eye on because we have lots of really a lot of variety of stuff that comes up here. So again, signumuniversity.org and then just click on events. Um, we have uh, uh, bunches of things here. Of course, we have our, our regional moots and things uh, uh, with links to the registration for those. So, you know, if ever you, you know, you're hearing about one of our moots coming up and you want to find out about, it, you can find the information here, links to the call for papers, uh, links to the registration and all that kind of thing, uh, is all right here. But also there's lots of other extra events that we do other than my weekly, uh, broadcasts, like for instance, the Mythgard movie club. They just did, uh, they just did, uh, their discussion of the movie alien, 
classic sci-fi film. Uh, and uh, soon they're going to be doing, peeking ahead a little in the future, their next film next month in June uh, is going to be Solo the Star Wars Story. So if you want to get involved in some discussion of the new Star Wars film with them, uh, that'll be a great opportunity for that on June 14th. Um, we also have uh, some of our other symposia events. So we've got our thesis theater coming up, two of our, uh, our, our students who have just completed our master's degree program talking about their master's research. Lots of really fascinating uh, work that, that our students have been doing. And you can hear, so you can hear, you know, people who have uh, uh, just uh, finished getting through our master's program uh, discussing their work. Uh, some really, really fascinating stuff there. Uh, a big event coming up here, uh, a, a, a very special symposium uh, that we're doing on May 24th. So that's Thursday, May 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, this is going to be a roundtable discussion on Tom Shippey's new book. So Dr. Shippey is going to join us uh, along with several other of our Signum faculty to talk about his new book, Laughing I Shall Die, Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. Uh, so if you want to, you know, those of you who, who uh, uh, I'm sure many of you, of course, are familiar with Dr. Shippey. Dr. Shippey is, is basically the godfather of Tolkien studies. Uh, and not only, of course, the, 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 you know, sort of the driving force of Tolkien studies for many years, uh, but also he is uh, a wonderful medievalist, uh, you know, uh, just a, a very prominent scholar, primarily of Anglo-Saxon throughout his life. And this is, uh, it's, you know, the uh, the Viking thing, not that he's new to Old Norse or any of this stuff, but uh, uh, but this is a, this is a, a new study area for him. Uh, this book is uh, uh, some 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 fun new material. So this is really exciting. So actually, I, I mean, I, I've got to say, you know, people keep people keep, you know keep asking me if I'm really excited about the Fall of Gondolin coming out, and I, you know, I am. Like, I always love it when these books come out. These books are showpieces, and they're fantastic, and I think they're beautiful, and I, I look forward to the illustrations. Of course, as I've talked about, Fall of Gondolin, I don't think there's anything new in there. Uh, so it's, I'm, 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 I'm excited that it's going to be coming out, right? And that through that, hopefully, many people will get a chance to read some of the Fall of Gondolin stuff that they've never read before. Really cool. Glad to see that happening. But, you know, I'm with, this is the book I'm excited to, uh, uh, to get. This is the book I can't wait to read. Uh, Tom Shippey's new book. Uh, so, anyway, uh, this is... Um, this is really great. Yes, Blue Wizard. I also wish he was coming to Mythmoot. We've uh, it's been it's getting harder and harder for him to uh, uh, fly across the Atlantic. It's it's sort of a, 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 an increased physical hardship. Um, uh, but we've 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 tried. It's uh, it's challenging. So. We do the best that we can, uh, and here uh, I'm just delighted to get the opportunity to, to, to sit and listen to, to Dr. Shippey talk about his new book. So that's going to be a really big event. Again, you can go to this page, uh, get the details. You can register uh, for the webinar link so that you can get into the webinar. We'll also be simulcasting that on Twitch as well, so you'll be able to, you'll be able to see that. So lots of cool stuff going up going on and of course the moots coming up myth moot uh five of course now this is technically the last month to register for myth moot so the time is now and you can get the schedules up so you can see all the schedule uh for all the days of course the schedule subject to change but you you know you'll, you'll be able to see the whole thing you can see all the awesome stuff that's happening, or at least all the scheduled awesome stuff uh, that's happening at MythMoot. Uh, and, uh, and you know, so anyway, yeah, definitely register for MythMoot as soon as you can. And BayMoot, which we've just recently announced, uh, and we've already had a bunch of signups for that, so that's really, really cool. 
in Oakland, California. So our Northern California Regional Moot happening in August, August 18th, uh, being hosted at Mills College in Oakland, California. Uh, so again, you can see there's a call for papers there for people who might want to, uh, thinking about presenting. Uh, that would be really cool. So yes, yes, Veronica, signups are open for Baymood. Definitely, I've been seeing those coming in, so that is all set now. Um, yeah, so anyway, this is the, uh, uh, lots of really fun stuff. So again, I just, I, I, I commend the events page to you. We, 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 we keep this thing up to date and rotating through, uh, and there's always really exciting stuff and it's easy to lose track of all of the awesome stuff that, uh, that we're facilitating here at Signum. Uh, so I hope, uh, uh, just wanted to draw your attention, uh, to this page. All right. Well, let us, um, let us return. Let us uh, well. Let us return. Let us begin. Let us uh, let us return to the text. So tonight, uh, we just got to the point last time where where we got, we, got, we read Gandalf's letter. We talked about the postscript. Uh, we were looking at the conversation afterwards, and uh, 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 Sam was still being skeptical and saying that he thinks that uh, you know. Whoever this dude is could have done in the real Strider and taken his clothes, right? Uh, so we were about to have uh, uh, Aragorn's comeback uh, to Sam's observation there. But uh, first, uh, a couple notes and queries, and then we'll get to Aragorn's response to Sam. Uh, two uh, really good points that I wanted to clear up. Both of them actually related to the sort of the time frame around Brie. And I, this is so important. And I, this is, again, one of the things that's been really striking me in our reading through this time that I think, I don't think that I have ever really stopped in the way that we're, you know, kind of slowing things down here. I don't think I've ever really taken the time to sit through and think from the time that Gandalf wrote his letter to the time that Frodo actually left and, you know, what the situation was, what it looked like to Gandalf, right, at the time that he sat down in the Prancing Pony and wrote his letter to Frodo. Um, like, where was Aragorn and what was going on with Aragorn? Really kind of thinking through the movements of all of those, uh, of all of those people in those times. And the Nazgul, like the ring rates, where are they in relation to all these things? Um, so I think that... Um, this is, uh, uh, it's, it's really, I find it really, really helpful to actually sit down and think this through. It helps to make, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, like, the action really make a lot more sense. Sometimes people have responded, uh, to this as if it's a plot hole. Like, for instance, it is in the film, right? I mean, it just, to me, it makes, it never made any sense. I was deeply puzzled when Gandalf, comes to Bag End in the in the movie, right? And it's like, Frodo, the Nazgul, they could be here any second. So what I'm going to do is leave you alone and ride in the other direction for hundreds of miles. Uh, and I mean, that just, it doesn't make any... Gandalf would never, ever do that, of course, right? So in the book, why does he, right? Why does he leave? Why does going all the way down south to Isengard seem like a good idea when he's leaving Frodo behind in the Shire? Um... But again, it actually does make sense in the context of thinking of the timing of all these things and where things actually are. So, okay, let's, um, uh, first, first time frame related question. Vranda, uh, was asking, okay, so I mentioned all the time how poorly Frodo and company have been with security on their journey. Certainly they've not impressed anybody, but what about Gandalf? He had been extremely careless with respect to this unnecessary letter. We assume that the, from the letter's urgency, 
that Gandalf has become aware that the Nazgul are heading into the Shire. He then asks Butterbur, who Gandalf knows would send either Nob or Bob, to take a letter there, almost certainly with some address or destination so marked. There is a risk that Nob or Bob would be accosted on the road by the Nine, and the letter revealed with Frodo's address and Aragorn's info. Aragorn had been very careful about his identity, even claiming that the enemy had set traps for him. Gandalf, linking the name Aragorn to the, to the identifiable and locally known name of Strider, and then including the prophetic poem containing elements easily known to the enemy, king, broken sword, etc., took a huge risk with both Frodo's and Aragorn's identities slash whereabouts, especially in light of his third postscript, where he questions Butterbur's ability to even achieve the task at all. Uh, great. So, I, 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 this is exactly the kind of question that had off that I you know has that I, I often find you know and and you know and that sometimes I've even had in my own mind right again like why would Gandalf do this and I think it's a really good point about the potential security risk especially with regard to Aragorn right because he is kind of outing Aragorn here um if uh, you know if this if this letter falls in the wrong hands I think it's a great point in particular about the poem right not only is uh, uh does the letter identify Aragorn with Strider Right, thus blowing his uh, his his cover in Bree, um, but even uh, as Vranda points out, uh, with the the poem, you know, to somebody who knows something, they might be able to make something of that poem uh, and figure out the secret which has been to this point hidden from the enemy uh, that this Aragorn who may well be known by name as the leader of the rangers, you know, the, the, the leader of the Dunedain in the north, is, uh, uh, is you know, is the heir of Isildur, right? That could conceivably be, uh, uh, be, be uh, uh, worked out. Now, I don't think this is a real security risk. I don't think that Gandalf is making, uh, uh, is making a big mistake here. Um, now, I agree, Fourth Dauntless, there still is the issue of the... Uh, of literacy, right? I, can the Nazgul read? You know, is this going to be? I, we don't really know. Um, you know, will they? Would they interact with things even in that way? Uh, you know, um, I'm not going to hang up. A, uh, I'm not going to hang a lot of hope uh, on the illiteracy of the Nazgul. They might be illiterate, but they might not. I mean, several of them were. Um, uh, you know, I mean, they were all. Uh, sort of powerful men in their day. Have they lost the ability to read? You know, do they still see, you know, well enough to read themselves? Um, I, yeah, exactly. Fourth Thomas, that's usually just saying. They can't really see uh, normally. Yeah, they might not. Um, but again, to me, that's not the primary... Um, that's not the primary question, right? To me, the question is timing. It's all about timing. Remember, Gandalf wrote this letter at... <laughs> JJ says their horses can read. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so no problem. Um, <laughs> uh, right, so, okay. Um, so, get timing. Uh, they, they... Oh, hang on a second. How many of you did... I've seen uh, so a few of you are, have lost audio. Is, are, is the audio okay? You getting me? Looks like you're getting me. You guys hearing me on Chippy there? It's okay. Little, little, little hiccup there. Okay, fine. Good. All right. Anyway, timing. Gandalf writes this letter on Midsummer's Day, right? So it's June, you know, it's between June and July when he writes this letter. The Nazgul are not 
on the way. So the 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 the, the crucial thing is uh, up here in the third sentence. Um, Gandalf has become aware that the Nazgul are heading into the Shire. No, they are on this half of the continent looking for the Shire. That's what he has learned, right? Um, and he has every reason to believe that they're, it's going to take them months to find the Shire, right? And, of course, he's going to be perfectly correct about that. They are not going to find the Shire until mid-September, right? So it's going to be the entire month of July, the entire month of August, and halfway through September, more than halfway through September, before they're going to actually cross the borders of the Shire, right? Um, there is more than enough time. If... Frodo gets the letter and leaves back, leaves the Shire by the end of July, as Gandalf suggested. He would have been sitting in Rivendell for weeks before they even got into the area, right? I mean, they wouldn't even have come up the Greenway before he got there. So, um, uh, yeah, exactly. The mad, the mad violinist points out if you look at the, uh, if you look at the, the, the sort of the stuff in the back, they cross the Anduin at midsummer, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, they have the the their, the the rumors are that they are coming, not that they're there, right? If they were there, there is no way Gandalf would have turned around, gotten Frodo. I mean, he would not have messed around with uh, with Isengard. Um, but as it was, he thought that he had time, and he was right. He would, and not only is he right about how long it would take the Nazgul to get to the Shire, he's also right about the fact that he had enough time to go to Isengard and back. Right, the only reason he didn't make it back in time is that he was held captive. Right, had he not been held captive, he would have had plenty of time. Um, so, uh, so I think that this again, this is this is the main problem. Uh, I would say uh, with this sort of whole line of thinking, there's 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 no reason to think that the letter is going to fall into the hands of the Nazgul. There is every... It's going to... And not only is, would Frodo have had plenty of time to get to Rivendell, think of how much more time this letter has to get safely to Frodo. And it's not... Having his address on it um, isn't any problem, right? This isn't this isn't really an issue. And the reason it's not an issue uh, is that... Um, uh, the reason that this isn't an issue is that Frodo's address is not a secret at all, at that point. He's not even sold Bag End. He's still living in Bag End. Everybody knows who he is there, right? Um, so there's no reason to, like, he's not hiding his identity. He's not on the, he's not a, he's not even attempting uh, to keep a low profile yet, right? Because he's still not even moved away um, from, um, uh, from from Bag End yet. Uh, so, so again, I, there's really, I, as far as Frodo's concerned, there's, again, if Butterbur sends it anytime within the next few days, he's supposed to send it. And remember, it only takes a couple days, even for a hobbit to walk uh, to the Shire, right? Um, there is no reason uh, that Frodo wouldn't have gotten that in at least, what, a week, right? Maybe two weeks if they really took their time and stopped in every inn along the way, right, to sample the local beer. Um, still, by the middle of July, he should have gotten that letter. Uh, and again, at that point, he's not sold back in. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing to hide, right? Um, and so, therefore, the risk to Aragorn's identity is also minimal, right? Um, the only people that are, I mean, you could say that he's taking a risk by uh, putting it down in writing, 
right? Um, and giving it into Butterbur's hands. If he his messenger proves untrustworthy and opens it and reads it and tells everybody about it, it could still potentially cause trouble for Aragorn and Bree. But at the same time, Gandalf knows this is, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what Gandalf and Aragorn are trying to do up there in Eriador, this is kind of endgame, right? Um, so Gandalf, I think, is perfectly willing to take the risk, and I think that Aragorn would agree. Um, the secrecy of Aragorn's identity uh, is, in the end, going to be uh, less less urgent, less important, certainly, uh, than the quest of the Ringbearer here. So, uh, you know, for the sake of Frodo's safety, uh, he is willing, and I suspect that Aragorn would agree with him, uh, to uh, put this in writing, especially since he's giving it to somebody whom he considers trustworthy. Forgetful, but trustworthy. And, of course, he's perfectly right, right? The secret does not get out uh, from Butterbur or his messenger, because he doesn't give it to a messenger. Um... And, Catriona, I agree, it's unlikely even that the messenger would even be literate, and it doesn't need to be, right? Um, the direction is is fairly simple, right? Um, all he has got to do is get into the Shire and ask for the directions to Hobbiton, right? And then when he's in Hobbiton, ask for directions to Bag End. That's all he needs, right? And, uh, and that's what the direction on the outside of, uh, of the letter says. Um, so anyway... So in the end, I don't think that this is really a big security risk, again, primarily because of that timing. Uh, now, Kate was thinking through the timing again and thinking about the question of Aragorn's caution and this issue of the traps that have been set for him and what he's thinking about the hobbits. Uh, Kate, I love this perspective, um, uh, thinking about not just Frodo and Sam, but about uh, Merry and Pippin. So Kate says... I think when trying to make sense of Strider's words, it is helpful to consider what he might have been expecting to see while waiting outside Bree. He says that he met Gandalf on May 1st, which would have been a couple weeks after Chapter 2. At that point, yes, remember, uh, Gandalf says that he he's a little anxious, he's, he's heard something that needs looking into, right? And he goes out, and that's when he meets Strider, right? You know, that's, that's when Strider last meets up with Gandalf. Um... Okay, so yes, at that point, Frodo had decided to leave around September 22nd. That was the plan. And Gandalf had drafted Sam as his companion. So as far as Aragorn knew, Gandalf would be accompanying Frodo and Sam to Rivendell at the end of September. And he went off on a journey of his own. That is, Strider, right, went off on a journey of his own. So I agree, this is really important, Kay. This is a wonderful point. As far as Strider knew, he was looking for... Gandalf plus Frodo and Sam, right? Gandalf and two hobbits coming out of the Shire in September, right? Okay. When he returned, he learned from Gildor that Gandalf was missing and that Black Riders had come north and were heading towards the Shire. I imagine that the rangers had known that Gandalf rode south and had not come back and that Gildor had learned this from them. And then he learned from Gildor that Frodo was on the road being pursued by a black rider and that he had two hobbit companions, one of whom, Sam, had told the elves that he would follow Frodo to the moon. So he might have reason to expect to see three hobbits on the road, but then four showed up with Bombadil. Of course, Bombadil seemed to be on good terms with all of them, but then again only three showed up in the common room. 
So while Aragorn could have good reason to trust Gandalf's judgment about Frodo and Sam, right, and I, I love Kate's point about how Gildor uh, would, would be able to corroborate that, right? I mean, uh, Gildor has named Frodo an elf friend, uh, and presumably that would have been included in the message Aragorn has heard from Gildor, right? So uh, Gildor is probably has given his stamp of approval. So despite you know, Aragorn's dubiousness about Frodo's performance in the common room, Gildor has named him elf friend, right? Which, remember, Aragorn can probably recognize just by seeing him, actually, right? As we've talked about before. Um, and Sam, right? Sam has had that little uh, conversation with the elves, and Gildor might have talked about that, too. And that, as Kate points out, would track with what Gandalf told him, right? I am sending... No, I'm going to be bringing Frodo and his servant, right? Frodo and his his uh, his supporter. Um, okay, great. Um, but yeah, then who's this third guy, right? Who's this third hobbit? Gandalf didn't say anything about a third hobbit. And then four hobbits come out of the downs, and then three hobbits come to the common room. Okay, let's keep going. Um, So while Aragorn could have good reason to trust Gandalf's judgment about Frodo and Sam, the wizard had been missing for months, and these two extra hobbits are an unknown quantity. Why did Frodo bring them? Are they trustworthy? What do they know? Are they part of the quest, or just coming as far as Bree? All these unknowns on top of Frodo's accident give Aragorn good reason to be cautious about giving away too much information about himself. That's, I think this is a really interesting point, Kate, um, in particular, that even if he's not dubious about Frodo, right, even if he's not thinking that Frodo, because that's really kind of the way that I was asking the question when we were looking at the right, when he's thinking about the enemy setting traps for him, maybe this is a trap, um, does he really think that Frodo's a fake? I mean, he's clearly got the ring, right, when we were talking about that, um, he might possibly uh, with some reason conclude that Frodo's an idiot, uh, but he seems unlikely to have been a trap laid for him by the enemy, right? But what about these other schmoes, right? And then, of course, he comes back after the common room, into the, and the fourth one is still missing. Where the heck is he, right? What's he up to? Uh, is he trustworthy? He's got, well, I mean, this is fishy behavior, right? Mary, Mr. Like, oh, excuse me, I'm just going to go for a nocturnal stroll, right? Through this town of, you know, big people that I've never been to before, right? I mean, that's fishy behavior. I, 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 I get that, right? And who is Pippin? Is this the same hobbit that Gildor talked about? Actually, he is, right? But would he have been, uh, would he have gotten Pippin's name, right? Would he even know that? Um, Anyway, this is, and and again, as Kate was pointing out, this Gandalf said nothing about this, right? Um, now, it's not to say that this is all, like, deeply bizarre and, like, totally disturbing. It, you know, it's not that it doesn't make some sense um, or that it's outside the realm of possibility that Frodo might have brought more than one companion. Um, and yet again, is this a trap, right? Uh, is one of these guys a plant? And especially since Mary is acting exactly like a plant would act, right? I, can't, I came with them along debris, and then I slipped out to talk to my contacts and have a meeting with the Black Rider in whose pay I am, right? I, that could happen, right? Uh, in fact, in some ways, that seems darn likelier than what has actually happened, right? 
um, then he would, in fact, just innocuously go out for a stroll in the middle of the night in a strange uh, uh, town full of big people. Uh, again, if anything, that seems a little bit less plausible uh, than that he's gone out for some kind of dubious or scurrilous reason. So um, I think, that, uh, yeah, Kate, this is a really, uh, this is a really uh, great way of, uh, um, of thinking about this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Catriona asks, would Aragorn know the names Took and Brandybuck and thus maybe have some basis for judging their trustworthiness on the basis of their families? Yes and no. I mean, sure. I'm sure he's heard of the Tooks and Brandybucks. I mean, he's been around the Shire long enough and he's talked with Gandalf enough to, to, to doubtless have heard those names before. Would the names be enough to reassure him? Right? I wouldn't think so. Are all the Tooks and Brandybucks responsible and trustworthy? Eh, that seems like a lot to ask, right? Uh, I'd be, uh, uh, I'd be kind of doubtful of that, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, no, so I, I agree. He, uh, um, he would definitely know of the Tooks for Thalas. There's no chance he's never heard the name of Took, right? But again, there are Tooks and Tooks, you know, right? Um, uh, some of them have been friends, friends of Gandalf in the past, and he's doubtless met, uh, many of them. And of course he knows, he knows Bilbo. Um, but, um, yeah, Valoris says he's not not sure Gandalf's opinion of Tooks would reassure him. Yeah, yeah, there's always that. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Matt says it isn't just that there are Took and a Brandybuck. How likely is it that the heirs to the two major houses are there? Yeah. Now, of course, they don't introduce themselves that way, right? You know, they don't necessarily. I mean, you'd have to know Hobbit genealogies reasonably well to know, like, they don't introduce themselves by their father's name, you know, with their father's names or anything. He doesn't say, "I'm Pippin, son of Paladin, right of the House of Took." Um, he's just introduced as Mister Took and Mister Brandybuck. Um, so I don't think he, you know, would Strider's familiarity with the families of Took and Brandybuck be sufficiently intimate uh, to know. Uh, that, you know, these guys are claiming to be the heirs of the houses. And I'm not sure which direction that goes, right? Even if he did know that, would that make it more or less plausible that they were fakes, <laughs> right? I don't really know. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I think that this is a really, um, um, I think that this is a really excellent point, a great way of thinking about this. And uh, uh, thanks, Kate, for kind of walking us uh, through that, thinking about the dubiousness of Marion Pippin and especially how it doesn't match. I mean, it just doesn't match with what uh, what Aragorn was told anyway by Gandalf. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, let us get back to the text. So Sam has just said you might be a play-acting spy, right, who did in the real Strider and took his clothes. Uh, what do you have to say to that, right? And here's Aragorn's response. That you are a stout fellow, answered Strider, but I am afraid my only answer to you, Sam Gamgee, is this. If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you, and I should have killed you already without so much talk. If I was after the ring, I could have it now. He stood up and seemed suddenly to grow taller, in his eyes gleamed a light, keen and commanding. Throwing back his cloak, he laid his hand on the hilt of a sword that had hung concealed by his side. 
They did not dare to move. Sam sat wide-mouthed, staring at him dumbly. "'But I am the real Strider, fortunately,' he said, looking down at them with his face softened by a sudden smile. "'I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will.'" Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, as you guys are still debating the question of would he know who Merry and Pippin were. Um, first, the parallel that I was make, that I was really struck by, right, of course, which I've hinted at in my subtitle here, Strider the Ranger Uncloaked, um, is, of course, this reminded me of the scene with Gandalf and Bilbo back in Chapter 1 where Gandalf suddenly looms very threateningly uh, as and accompanies his uh, extremely ominous looming uh, with a verbal threat, right? Um, and Aragorn does a very similar thing here. Noting first the similarity of the actions, right, um, I was then led to think about what was happening, because we looked fairly closely at that scene uh, with Bilbo and Gandalf, and what was fairly clear at the time looking at that, I think it was fairly clear, is that that is Gandalf Gandalf was actually exerting his own will, his own power on Bilbo there um, and attempting to reach him Bilbo was falling under the power of the ring, and Gandalf was attempting to intervene. That seems fairly clear. That seems to be that that moment seems to be what Gandalf is referring to when, in Chapter Two, he says to Frodo about how Bilbo gave up the ring of his own will, and he says, "And he needed all of my help too." Right? Um, he refers to having, you know, materially assisted Bilbo in giving up the ring. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, most certainly that moment that he's talking about uh, when he says that. So um, that's the function. That's the reason why Gandalf does his looming thing. He's not just trying to... It's not just an argument with Bilbo, right? He's not just trying to cow Bilbo generally. He is... Uh, opposing his will against directly against the will of the ring with Bilbo's will kind of in the middle, right? So what's Strider doing? Why is Strider looming? Why does he do the Strider, the ranger uncloaked thing here? Um, seeming suddenly to grow taller, light gleaming in his eyes, throwing back his cloak, right? He literally uncloaks himself and he puts his hand on the hilt of his sword he was acting like a rascal before, and we've talked, you know, a lot about why he sort of appeared to look dangerous and shady early on. This is different on the one hand, right? He's not acting like a rascal here. Um, but yet what he's doing here seems to really demand, um, to really demand explanation, right? Uh why does he do this? Yeah, JJ says he's acting like a king in Camilla. Tony, JJ, and Veronica are all talking about him sort of asserting leadership here. Uh, and that is the language that we have, right? The light in his eye is not merely scary or threatening. It is keen and commanding, right? Um, and in light of his... So his drawing himself up to his full height, his keen, the keen and commanding 
gleam in his eye, uh, and even laying his hand on the hilt of his sword. Right, he's not drawn his sword yet. Right, um, so this is there's kind of an implied threat, but again, there's also, um, you know, a, a, a sort of it's sort of a commanding posture. Right, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely agree with that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, um, but. But let me play the devil's advocate here. So on the one hand, you can say, like, he's sort of striking a pose that fits. In a sense, you could say, this is Aragorn, in, 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 in as much as he is uncloaking himself here, right? What he's doing, this is, um, he is throwing off his antic disposition, right? He is throwing off his rascally attitude, right? So if, if he was attempting uh, to to look like his... Breland persona earlier on, this is him completely shedding the Breland persona, right? I'm going to show you what I'm really like. Um, so again, when Gandalf says, you know, you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked, that's a threat, right? Normally, I contain my power and the force of my will, but like, you know, if things, if you say that again, Bilbo, right, if things continue going down this path, I'm going to let it loose, right? I'm going to, I'm just going to open up a can right here in this room, right? Um, again, it's, it's more of a threat about, un, you know, unleashing his power. With Strider, it seems to me more about revealing himself, right? Um, Strider uncloaked means, okay, forget about the rascal stuff. We're going to, I'm going to show you what I'm really like and what he's really like is tall, regal, commanding, uh, and, uh, you know, dangerous, imposing, but not dangerous in the, in the way that Sam was talking about, right? Not dangerous in the way that they've been fearing, not dangerous in a, this is an untrustworthy guy who might be trying to lure us out, uh, into the middle of nowhere so that he can kill us in our sleep, right? Not that kind of dangerous. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, uh, Tony says there's a distinction between being a king and being kingly. Um, others make you a king, you make yourself kingly. Yeah, making himself kingly or showing himself to be kingly, I think it seems a fair description of what Strider does. Uh, JJ says he's showing them that he is more dangerous than they could have imagined, but that he's not threatening them. They can trust him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so it's it is more of a uh, more of an unmasking there, right? Yeah, Blue Wizard says if they don't get his connection to the poem now, they never will, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Lady Shmebiwak says if if he's showing himself to be dangerous, it's the kind of dangerous that you would want on your side, right? Now that's true. I would say though that. Um, Remember how? I mean, what's, what's, let's not forget his words, though, right? We're focusing on that middle paragraph, but don't forget that first paragraph, right? Um, he is not threatening, right? He is not. He has not issued any threats. He has not said, "I'm. I might do this to you, or I'm gonna do this to you." Uh, he says, "If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you," right? So he's talking about killing them. Uh, and he's stating flatly that 
if I was after the ring, I could have it now. Um, so he states perfectly clearly, right? Not beating around the bush, not talking about your business or any kind of evasions, right? I know you have the ring. I could take it if I wanted it, right? I haven't killed you. I haven't taken the ring. I could have done at any point, right? Um, so he is making, so the, the point that he's making is in reverse, essentially, right? Again, asserting his dangerousness, not threatening them, but pointing out that I could have killed you at any point, right? Um, but I haven't killed you. Uh, and that should show you that I'm trustworthy, right? And again, it's it's kind of interesting, right? That here's Sam saying, this guy might not be safe, right? I mean, if we follow him out into the dark in the middle of nowhere, who knows what that guy could do to us under those circumstances? And Strider's response is, dude, I do not need to lure you out into the dark, right? It's not... If I were, you know, if I were a bad guy, uh, I would not go to so much trouble, right? I would kill you here and now and seize the ring and I could have done it at any time, right? So in a sense, by showing uh, that he is, in fact, even more dangerous than Sam is suspecting, right? No, I am not the kind of guy who might lure you out and kill you. I am way more dangerous than that. So dangerous that you can trust me because I haven't killed you yet. Um, Bruinier says, people uh, saying they could kill me always makes me feel safe. Yeah, that's kind of the irony here, right? I mean, it is, uh, it, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, he is throwing off his disguise, right? And yet there is a kind of similarity between the way that he talked, kind of led them to believe that he was dangerous and rascally at the beginning, uh, and the the way that he approaches this now, this this is not reassuring. At least, not, I mean, it's kind of indirectly reassuring. Um, but Bruinier, I agree that the the um, uh, yeah, Cecilia is pointing out how this is kind of the opposite of what Boromir does later, right? Boromir is going to try to take the ring um, after you know trying to convince everyone, including himself, right, that he. Uh, Frodo is safe, even in that conversation, right? Um, yeah, I agree. Um, but Brunier, that's exactly, I think, what makes this moment so interesting, right? So so uh, sort of striking and strange, and why I think Sam is, is sitting wide-mouthed, staring at him dumbly, right? This is a lot to process. Um, you are a stout fellow, Sam, right? Um, I like your caution. I like your pluck. Um, but let's be honest here, right? Um, you know, I, I've got Sam Gamgee to reckon with. I could reckon with you in about 30 seconds or less, right? And Sam doesn't know how to handle that. Um, uh, of course, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, that's interesting. The Mad Violinist says it's also another restatement of saying that they're not taking the situation seriously enough. In a sense, I wonder, you know, I, I, I do think there's kind of an element of that in the sense that, you know, Sam's sort of scenario, right? You might be a play acting spy who did in the real Strider and took his clothes. Um, 
there is, I think, a sense of Strider being like, dude, let's not get cute about this, right? Um, you know, like, I am bigger than you. I am stronger than you. Uh, I have a sword. You've got your little knives. Um, if I wanted the ring, I could. Like, so, uh, you know, let's let's push our chips into the middle, into the middle of the table here, Sam Gamty. Okay, right? You're wanting to really see what I'm... Here's what I'm about, right? Here's what the situation really is, right? Okay, right? Now that we understand each other, you, you can see I, I'm, I'm, I am the real Strider, fortunately, right? I'm not going to... Notice I haven't killed you yet, and I'm not going to kill you, right? And if I, if I haven't yet, then uh, you have some reason to think I, I'm not going to, right? Um, and Lady Shmebulak, I agree, it always, that line of Sam's always makes me laugh, too, as if stealing the real Strider's clothes would, like, that would fool Butterbur, right? Is there something, dist- is there anything distinctive about Strider's clothes that would lead, uh, uh, you know, Butterbur and everybody else in Breed to, like, think that this dude was actually Strider, um, it's a little far-fetched, right? That it sounds like the suggestion of somebody who has heard many stories of adventures, but has not really done this himself, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right, as Brunier says, yeah, the spy also did in the real Butterbur. The whole thing is an elaborate setup, right? But I guess exactly what I'm saying. It's way too cute. Right. Um, one of the things I think that Strider is pointing out here, right, uh, and is trying to again sort of wake them up to, is look, real spies of the enemy. Like that. That's not how it works. This is not a play, right? Yeah, this is not. This is not like an 18th century farce or something. Like bad guys don't hatch ridiculously elaborate plans involving changing places and disguising one person as another and deceiving him. Like that, you know that that whole idea. I mean, Bruder, it's it's a really funny idea, right? But that's exactly the kind of direction that Sam is sort of thinking, right? Right. Well, maybe the maybe the whole thing is a setup, right? Maybe the you know that the, everybody's a play acting spy and this whole elaborate thing has been done in order to and Strider's like, no, a real servant of the enemy would just off you and would have done so already long before we got to this point in the conversation. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly, Valori. It's it's exactly not like one of those uh, one of those plays where the where the twin puts on her brother's clothes, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, it's exactly. But that seems to be the kind of direction that Sam is thinking, right? Which again is is kind of a a lovely notion if you just have heard lots of stories, right? Um, but um, but haven't um, don't actually know very much of the world. Um. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it turn around turns around with um Strider not only saying I am the real Strider, right? Um his his final point is not just notice I haven't killed you yet, right? But he makes a vow, right? I am Aragorn son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. 
right? He names himself, and then he swears an oath, right? He makes a promise. If I can save you, I will. Um, no, no evasions, no, no, uh, yeah, Tony, no more third person, right? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. And yes, JJ, his mentioning of the ring shows them right. Good, Marianne, exactly. It's it is it is an oath of service, right? Um, he's not just you know, he's not coming in and just t- sort of taking things over. He's saying, I, I am, you know, I will swear to give my life to protect you, uh, if need be. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says that he just noticed that Aragorn acts on this oath in his first decision as king. Yeah, exactly. He's received in Minas Tirith. Uh, he is acclaimed by people like, you know, Imrahil and Eomir, um, even if he's not officially recognized yet or announced in the city formally. Uh, he's been accepted as king, and what's the first thing that he does? Right? Is uh, lead the army out in order to draw the enemy away to give himself up, right? If by life or death I can save you, I will. Exactly, Fourth Thoughtless. And that's exactly what he's going to do uh, in his first sort of overtly, even though he's not crowned yet, it is uh, his first kingly act, right? Uh, as far as a sort of a political act is concerned. And yeah, it's he's still fulfilling this same promise that he made to them in the Inn at Bree. Um, Gilgonthir, that's a great question. Is this an actual good oath in Tolkien? Now, uh, in a sense, yeah. Now, see, this is the thing. I don't think that promise... A lot is made about oaths and how oaths uh, get you into trouble, right? And certainly that is a bit of a motif, right? Especially in the Silmarillion. Um, Now, it's hard, of course, because not every oath can be judged by the oath of Theonor. Right, the oath of Feanor is intrinsically wicked. Right, um, it is. You know, we will do this no matter what. We will ignore all questions of right and wrong. Right, no circumstances will. Inf- we are going to obtain the end that we claim, no matter who tries to stand against us or what happens under any circumstance. That's bad. It's just a bad, bad oath. Um, and. Um, and, you know, and there are other oaths that don't work out so well, but are kind of a little bit more, um, a little bit more ambivalent, right? Like the oath of, uh, of Finrod Felagund, right? That he swears to Bara here, uh, which, you know, he talks about how he is caught, right, in the net. Um, and yeah, it leads to his death, which is arguably bad, right? Um, but I would not at all put, uh, Finrod Felagun's oath to uh, Barahir on the same par uh, with Feanor's, with the oath of Feanor, right? It's not an evil oath. Um, it leads to his death, which is, again, <laughs> not awesome, right? But um, but also not the worst thing in the world either. Um, so, uh, anyway, but promises. People make promises. Uh, and making promises... That's not bad, right? Making promises and keeping, you know, making your promise to to do a good thing. Making your, pro- I mean, goodness, think about every oath of uh, loyalty, right? Think of oaths of fealty. Think of the oath of uh, of uh, Kyrian and Aeoril, right? There are lots of good oaths too, um, which are sworn and kept to. Uh, so a lot of it is. It's not just. I mean, the thing about the 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 main thing that is consistently true of oaths uh, in Tolkien is that. You're going to be held to it, 
right? Oaths tend to be binding on you, whether or not you, uh, uh, you know, you mean to keep them, whether you keep them or not. Um, oaths are binding. If you've sworn a good oath, like Kyrian and Aorl's oath seems to be a good oath, right? You swear that good oath, then, and by being bound to it is good, right? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, when you swear uh, a wicked oath, like the oath of Feanor is a wicked oath, um, then you're bound to that too, right? And you end up like like uh, Mithros and Maglor at the end saying, uh, you know, the, the the eternal darkness will be our lot one way or another, right? It's just a question, you know, we should just be thinking about how we can minimize the damage we do to others, Um uh, so yeah, I mean that's 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 the that problem is not just what happens to everybody who swears an oath. That's what happens when you swear a bad oath, right? A wicked oath. Um, so uh, yeah, Bruinier exactly. Amir and Aragorn willingly, uh, with you know with uh, 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 lots of forethought, um, renew the oath of of Aorl. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, so yeah. Um, the, so I mean, I is this an oath? I mean, he doesn't swear by anybody. I mean, it's you know, it's but but this is definitely a promise, and um, you know, is Aragorn bound by this promise? Um, I I, I think I mean I think Fourth Dauntless's point is a great one. Um, you know, whether he is, what would happen if Aragorn betrayed this oath? Right, if he failed Frodo, um, what would happen to him if instead of protecting Frodo, uh, he tried to take the ring himself or something like that, right? I don't know. Maybe something bad, right? Is this enough of an oath to bring some kind of consequences upon him if he failed to fulfill it? Possibly. But of course, we don't know, because he does fulfill it, right? And we see him acting consistently to this um, uh, all the way through, right? Um, So... uh, Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, so, it's a long digression on oaths there, but it's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up because, of course, that's a really, especially when you are focused on the Silmarillion, uh, so many of those oaths just really don't seem to pan out. There, there aren't that many really good oaths, but again, we get, we get to the Lord of the Rings, and a lot of the oaths turn out relatively well, right? Or, or are, are sort of good oaths, to have made even the oath breakers, right? Um, you know, I, I, their oath was a good oath, right? They didn't keep it, right? But it wasn't a bad oath that they swore. It had bad consequences. Bad consequences. They broke it, right? But it wasn't a a, a bad oath that they that they swore. Um, yeah, Matt, that's a really interesting point. Matt says his hand is still on an heirloom sword. I have to think it's an oath. Yeah. Um, standing there in his kingly posture with his hand on the shards of Narsil, he, you know, on the hilt of Narsil, um, he names himself by his full name and says, if by life or death I can save you, I will. Yeah, it sounds oathy to me. Um, I would uh, I would say this... I, I would say it counts. Um... So yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, good. It, it, Marianne is pointing out that once they uh, the Oathbreakers fulfilled their good oath, right, they were released. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they're bound in eternal, you know, torment because because they swore an oath. Um, 
Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> JJ says, is that something the Valar ever have to discuss as to whether or not an oath counts? Yeah, I don't know the exact rules, and clearly there are oaths and oaths, right? You know, there are different things in different circumstances that, you know... Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that they're all equally binding, or that the consequence. It's not like every single, you know, promise or or uh, uh, sort of arbitrary statement that you make uh, is gonna like keep your unquiet spirit bound to the earth until you fulfill it. Uh, it's I, you know, I don't, there, there there are some gray areas, right? But. Uh, um, uh, but I, you know, I don't know that there are any clear sets of rules delineating, you know, big oaths from little oaths and and all that kind of thing. Um, I do think it has to do, Tony, with the will of the parties involved. That does seem to be uh, 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 part of it. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Fourth Thoughtless, that's a really good point. Fourth Thoughtless points out that the Valar even the Valar don't even really seem to have the power to hold the spirits of men in the world, uh, necessarily. Um, which does imply forth Dauntless, um, that it is quite possible that it's the power that, 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 that oath, for instance, uh, seems to be, uh, invested with power from Iluvatar himself, right? That it's, that there seems to be, um, taking a hand here on the oath situation. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Okay, anyway, let's keep going. Let's see if we can get past more than one slide today. There was a long silence. <laughs> yeah, I bet there was. At last, Frodo spoke with hesitation. I believed that you were a friend before the letter came, he said. Or at least I wished to. You have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. I see, laughed Strider. I look foul and feel fair, is that it? All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. Did the verses apply to you, then? asked Frodo. I could not make out what they were about. How did you know that they were in Gandalf's letter if you've never seen it? I did not know, he answered. But I am Aragorn, and those verses go with that name. He drew out his sword, and they saw that the blade was indeed broken, a foot below the hilt. Not much use, is it, Sam, said Strider. But the time is near when it shall be forged anew. Sam said nothing. Okay, um... I love the business about looking foul and feeling fair and um, uh, Strider's sense of humor uh, and his willingness to laugh at himself uh, is, I, I, I find, extremely disarming here, right? His joke, I look foul and feel fair, is that it? Um, is, um, again, I, I, I find um, uh, I find this a really... Um, uh, encouraging moment, right? Especially, uh, especially here. Um, 
JJ points out that a foot of blade would actually still be quite useful against unarmed hobbits or even hobbits armed with their little knives, which are certainly not more than 12 inches long themselves. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I also like Frodo's humility here, right? Um, that is when he adds, or so I imagine. Um, he speaks, you know, uh, you have frightened me several times, but not, never in the way that servants of the enemy would. Or so I imagine, right? And the fact is, he doesn't really know, right? He has only encountered uh, a couple servants of the enemy, right? He's, 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 you know, seen one or two of the Nazgul from relatively close up, some from far away, right? So he has some inkling of what it means to encounter a servant of the enemy, but he knows he doesn't really know that much, right? And he certainly never met anybody that he knew to be a spy uh, of the enemy. So, uh, you know, he was made uneasy by some of those guys in the common room, right? Especially Bill Fernie, uh and his handsome friend. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. JJ says, as we'll discover, Bill Fernie looks foul and feels foul. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but again, the point here, of course, that Frodo is making, and remember, this is following up what Frodo had said before, right? Um, r- before the letter came out, remember, he was just saying, um, Sam had just said, right, with your with your permission, Mr. Frodo, I'd say no, right? Let's let's say no to him, right? Let's, let's not go with him. Um and uh, Frodo said, "No, you know, no. I th- there's something there's something about him, right? He, you know, he he was already you know kind of getting around to the to the looking foul and feeling fair thing, right? That he he he's already saying, I think there's there's more uh, to you, Strider, than you're letting on, right? He was already perceiving that there was something beneath. At that time, remember, we were talking about the whole the whole elf friend thing, right? Was there something that he was sensing there? Um, uh, perhaps that about Aragorn? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Strider... As if to confirm, uh, you know, w- with this sort of semi-providential affirmation of Frodo's instinct here, right? Uh, Frodo is saying that he trusts Strider or wants to trust Strider, right? Um, and Strider immediately says the one thing that would seem absolutely to prove that he really is Gandalf's friend, right? Because he had no way of knowing that those verses were in that letter. And he's just, without even being asked to guess or something like that, he's just spontaneously quoted the first two lines of the poem that Frodo has just read from Gandalf. And remember when we were looking at that postscript by Gandalf, Gandalf doesn't even explain it, right? He just launches into the poem, Right? But of course, it's fortunate that he does because that serves as this final confirmation that um, uh, that Strider really that this Strider really is the real Strider, really is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, Tony, I hear that. Um, 
Tony says he wants to voice his objection to Aragorn carrying the shards of Narsil with him. Um, uh, why would the greatest warrior in Middle-earth walk around with a useless primary weapon? Uh, this is a great question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I mean, of course, there's also the question of just the preservation of heirlooms, right? Like, seriously, like you're going to, like, you're just going to walk around with that. Um, it's interesting to me that he does. I just think, thinking about it on that level at first, right? Um, not before we think about just the practicality of Strider arming himself against foes. Uh, if we think about it in the, like, as, as, as curator of Numenorean heritage is concerned, he's taking a fairly significant risk by toting around the 3,000-year-old broken sword. Well, the sword that's been broken for 3,000 years uh, and forged back in the First Age um, uh, by Telkar the, the Dwarf Smith. So, yeah, um, this is uh, quite the heirloom to be toting around. Um I, uh, um, as far as that's concerned, on the one hand, like, I would, I totally get that objection, and Tony, I know that's not exactly the primary objection that you're making, but, um, Somebody who would make an objection about that, that it's just foolish to do, to carry around the shards of Narsal. We want to take a little better care of them than that. Um, and you can see, right, Peter Jackson seems to have thought so, right? That's why the shards of Narsal are safely on display in Rivendell, right? Rather than being carried around everywhere on Aragorn's hip. Um, or one of the reasons, anyway. Tony, your objection seems to be the other one, right? Because Aragorn has a sword that he, in fact, makes use of in the film, right? Um, but, uh... Here I come back to the way that he just, see, you know, as Matt was just pointing out, the way that he seems to have sworn his oath on the sword, right? The sword is who he is. Um... Is the sword a really precious heirloom that you wouldn't want to risk? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It is. Right? But you know what else is? Him. Right? What's more valuable? The shards of Narsil or Aragorn himself? Right? Aragorn is the sole heir of Isildur. If he were to die, the line ends. Right? And it's all over. Shards of Narsil or no shards of Narsil. And the shards of Narsil not going to be any use, right, if the line of Isildur dies out. So what's he going to do? Keep himself in bubble wrap his whole life, right? No. That's not how he lives. That's not what he does, right? He is who he is, and he lives as he li- he doesn't He doesn't live scared, right? Um, and there seems to be something of... Uh, I mean, it, this is his job. It's his role, not to... His primary responsibility is not just to keep himself safe under any circumstances. He has just pledged his life to protect the lives of these hobbits, and not just any hobbits, but hobbits that have shown themselves careless and clueless at every turn, right? And now he has just pledged his own extremely precious life in order to keep them safe, right? That's how Aragorn rolls. And what's more, I think he's right to do so. So, 
compared with that, what's carrying around the shards of Narsal, right? They, they're like his badge of office. It's an important... So why would he carry it for purely symbolic reasons? Or is it to remind himself? Or, or what? I don't know. But the fact that he does swear that oath with his hand on the sword seems to suggest the kind of significance that the sword has for him, right? Um, so... Uh, yeah, I am Aragorn and that sword goes with that name. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> JJ says maybe carries it around in case he needs to swear an oath. Yeah, you never know. It's handy. Handy in that way. Um, I, does he have another weapon? Right? Is he prepared to defend himself? Does he have another primary weapon? Either... Well, we're only going to see him in combat once, right? Between here and Rivendell, where Narsil is going to be reforged. And that's in Withertop. And he just waves sticks around (laughs) at Weathertop, right? Uh, He comes in armed with torches only at Weathertop. Is that because he doesn't have any other weapon? Or is this because he knows that any other weapon that he had isn't going to do a lick of good, and so he doesn't bother waving it around and just waves the torch around instead? Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get sucked into deciding whether a torch is a primary weapon or an improvised weapon. However, um, uh, um I <laughs> now people are debating uh, whether or not he could still, uh, at a pinch, defend himself with the shards of the sword. I'm not sure it would really matter. Um, I... <laughs> Tony is still bothered by the fact that Aragorn is like Thor and Oakenshield going forth unarmed and having to fight with burning sticks that he picks up off the ground. Um, yeah. Does this mean he never fights with any other weapon? I, you know, I don't know that. Does it even mean that he travels with no other weapon habitually? Um, I wonder. We don't... Um, we don't get a description of him in his full gear. Remember, there's this description of the gear that they wear when they set out from, when the company sets out from Rivendell at the beginning of chapter two, or of book two, right? Um, we don't get anything like that, a full description of Aragorn's gear. Um, remember that he says, uh, like, does he carry a bow, for instance? I think he might. Uh, remember that he tells the hobbits, um, or will tell them in the next chapter, that he has some skill as a hunter at need, suggesting that he has the wherewithal to hunt things uh, and kill them for food, um, if need be. Um, So, you know, does that mean he carries a bow or something, or is he talking about, you know, snaring rabbits or something? I don't really know. Uh, That's entirely possible. Um, So is it... um, is it uh how bothered should we be that Aragorn is walking about unarmed? 
I don't know. What I'm wrestling with is I'm trying to explain why I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered by this. And I'm trying to figure out why I'm not bothered. I agree, Fourth Dauntless, that he does show himself to be highly proficient with a sword. Um, he probably has not waited until the reforging of Narsil to first pick up the sword. Uh, he seems to have used a sword on other occasions. Um, <laughs> Lori says, obviously, he's not bothered. Uh, I, I agree. Um, There are lots of ways in which we could apply ourselves to come up with rational explanations, right? Maybe, you know, there's like a, a, a ranger outpost not far from here where they're like, if there were danger, he could go and get a weapon or something. Or like, he's not going into battle, right? How likely is it that he's going to meet an enemy that he's going to need a sword against? You know, there are lots of ways in which we could, um, uh, in which we could kind of rationalize this, but I feel resistant even to doing that. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out why. Why I feel that this doesn't matter, and especially Tony. I mean, your point's an excellent one. Especially telling, right? Because you are pointing out the the thing that I I made fun of Thorin Oakenshield in my Hobbit book, right? For going forth unarmed, right? That they seemed like they were, you know, not the most worldly of adventurers to set off on their quest with apparently no weapons. And here I was mocking the dwarves for that, you know, from chapter three of the Hobbit. Or chapter two of The Hobbit, sorry, um, uh, in my book about this. And here now Tony's pointing out that Aragorn is in the same position. Am I going to laugh at him, too? Am I going to say the same thing, too, that he doesn't know what he's doing? Um, I'm going to take this as evidence that he's also kind of clueless, like Thorin and the other dwarves seem kind of clueless. Um, I... <laughs> Brunier says, too bad Turin didn't go unarmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, the number one thing that I would point to in saying, why is it that I have a different reaction to Aragorn not having a primary weapon and Thorin Oakenshield not having a primary weapon? And my answer is, he does have a weapon. It's a broken weapon, right? It's not super practical. But it's not like he's unarmed. He's carrying a sword, right? It is true that the sword that he carries has symbolic and mythic significance rather than practical usefulness, right? That's, there's no question about that. But it's not like... It, Thorin, with Thorin, it kind of looks as if he's forgotten weapons, right? 
Aragorn hasn't forgotten weapons. He's wearing a sword, right? He's familiar with the whole weapon concept. He has just chosen to carry a broken heirloom mythical sword rather than an actual practical weapon, right? Um, and so that by itself, not that now, obviously that doesn't prove that he's not a fool uh, by itself, uh, but it does to me put him in a different position than Thorin Oakenshield. And then, although Tony, again, it's a very telling point, as you say, that both of them end up picking up sticks off the ground and fighting with those because they don't have primary weapons, yet those circumstances are also very different too. Right When Thorin Oakenshield picks up a stick out of the fire and bashes and pokes the trolls with him, and he, 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 he makes a good accounting of himself with his pointed stick, right? Um, but, uh, but still, that's not the appropriate weapon. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's I mean, again, he did reasonably well for dude with pointed stick, but he uh, obviously the trolls had not learned how to defend themselves against a pointed stick. Right. Um, But had he had, you know, a sword or an axe, he'd have done much better. Right. With Aragorn, that's not the case. The only combat that we see him in is against the Nazgul in which a regular sword would have really not done him any good at all. Um, A burning stick is, in fact, the best weapon he could have used against the Nazgul under those circumstances. So it's not obvious to me that even if Aragorn had been carrying two or three backup primary weapons on his person that he would have used, that he he still would have probably gone into that fight with torches. Um, So, uh, anyway, yeah, um... That's um, so. So again, that's another way in which I don't find. Again, although it, they superficially they're very parallel, I don't find his situation to be uh, in the uh, in the end really convincingly similar uh, to Thorin's. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, uh, Cecilia. The sword would have been destroyed if he'd used it at Weathertop. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I agree. Several of you are talking about how, um, uh, you know, he's, like, he he's not going about to, like, ba- you know, he's, he's not a tank, right? He's not out to, like, charge into battle and bash things over the head. Um, he's, he, his mission is a stealth mission, right? And I do think that it is, uh, Tony, very possible that, well, see, I don't know, I go back and forth with this. On the one hand, like, going heavily armed into Bree would probably get people's attention, right? I mean, if he had, like, you know, a sword at his hip, two swords across his back, and a, you know, a halberd in his hand, like, they probably would have looked at him funny, right? If he'd come in equipped, uh, you know, like some RPG characters are, right? And that might have looked, that might have looked a little funny. Um, but he does wear a sword in Brie, right? He's in Brie, and he's wearing a sword. Um, and you can't tell from the outside that it's broken, right? It looks like a legit sword. Um, 
Yeah. Um, though, I mean, I, but I do think that the stealth thing, you know, Matt was just talking about that too. I do think that there's some legitimacy there. I mean, he's not, he is not going into battle. I don't think he would go into battle like this. And I think he has the wherewithal locally to arm himself if a battle is breaking out, but no, he doesn't seem to travel around, um, with a primary weapon. He, I think he has knives. I think he could probably defend himself. Um, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, I don't think that's, uh, that's, that's where he is here. Uh, and he would, I think probably look particularly strange in Bree with multiple <laughs> swords, right? Maybe they're willing to look the other way at a ranger who comes in out of the wild wearing a sword on his hip. Um, ranger with two or three swords <laughs> might not only be impractical, uh, but might, uh, perhaps turn even more, uh, 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 turn even more heads. Um, yeah. So, but again, at the end of the day, that kind of answer to the question isn't to me what satisfies here. I think in the end, why does Tolkien do this? Why does Tolkien leave Aragorn, um, without, um, why does he leave Aragorn without a primary weapon? here. Um, is this an oversight or a gaffe on Tolkien's part? I, I don't know that I would call it an oversight, but I think what I might call it is a moment where he is choosing the mythic impact of this moment over the practical. There are certain moments when he does that, right? Um, when characters will act in ways that are mythically powerful, even if they're not super practical, right? Um, that, um, that, uh, that happens. Uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus asks, is there any precedent in medieval tradition for this? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, not a problem. There's like, knights will go out without swords at all, right? They'll go out swordless, with a lance or something, you know, like they're, they're knights, right? So they'll ride out with their lances, um, but will carry no sword because they're like, I have sworn that I will not carry a sword until I find the sword that I, you know, I'm, I'm going out on a quest for the sword that I will eventually have, right? But I, I'm not going to have a sword between now and then, right? Like that kind of thing. Like you do that kind of thing sometimes. Um <laughs> JJ says, and what is a lance but a really long stick? So there we go. Um, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Tony Mead says, or Beowulf facing Grendel uh, naked and unarmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, Gladys Rabbit was just saying the same thing on the Twitch chat there about uh, Beowulf. Uh, fighting with no weapons there. Um, yeah, you know, uh, 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 Zephyr 12 was just saying another mythical over practical moment. Aragorn shouting down the orcs at Helm's deep and clear line of bowshot. I was literally picturing that scene when I said that. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I love that moment, right? And you can say, you know, you. There are there are several moments in the Lord of the Rings where somebody can say like, "Oh, that wouldn't really happen," right? Well, 
except it it does right in this story it does and and i think that's and 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 personally i think that the, those kind of resistances uh people who want to say but that's not how it would really work are kind of missing the point in some fairly deep ways actually um so uh yeah yeah um anyway good um I think, by the way, just as a side note, I think I just recently succeeded in making my first Monty Python reference that nobody got. <laughs> I've, I've never done that before, but I think I just finally did. Defending yourself against pointed sticks, right? No? Nobody? Uh, fairly obscure Flying Circus reference, right? Just threw that in there. Um uh, okay, right, yeah, you got it, you just didn't want to bring up the bananas, right, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, okay, <laughs> I know, I'm getting all these indignant comments, right, right, no, of course, I, I get it, I get it, that's good, I, 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 I knew you would, that's why I was surprised, nobody said anything. Um, <laughs> okay, yes, um, anyway, um, <laughs> That's my it's, it's my favorite line in that whole sketch is Eric Idle continually saying, "What about a pointed stick?" Um, <laughs> okay, so it's the how to defend yourself against being attacked by fruit sketch uh, in uh, uh, from the Flying Circus. For those of you who don't know, um, <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, so right, the time is near when it should be forged anew, and Sam's got nothing to say. Right now, one last point here. Notice what's going. On. Sam's staggerment here in this moment, right? Uh, his 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 dumbfoundedness uh, and his continuing silence here. I love this. Remember Sam's last words, most recent words, not not final words, right? But his most recent words. The whole play acting spy business, right? And we were talking about how this this is the the theory or the the suggestion of somebody who's who's heard a lot of stories but not really been part of many practical adventures, right? Um, notice what's just happened here, right? Sam had his head in stories. I would say that's that's how I would interpret that, right? Uh, you know, he's thinking of all the like convoluted plot twists that could possibly explain, right? He's being suspicious, um, and canny, right? as he would judge canniness based on some of the stories that he's heard. Um, now, see, it's not just that he's wrong. I think now, um, look what Strider has just said before Sam continues to say nothing here, right? First, Strider reveals himself, right? You know, we got that, you know, his open-mouthed, dumb staring, right, is as... Aragorn strikes his kingly pose. All of a sudden now he has revealed himself as he truly is, and Sam is dumbfounded. And now Strider has just, after having sworn an oath uh, to to save them by life or death, right, he says that verse, right, that poem that Gandalf recited is about me, right? Uh, and Sam is pretty, you know, Frodo didn't get the poem. He couldn't parse the poem. I wonder if it conveyed more to Sam than it does to Frodo. But um, Sam, or Aragorn has just said 
I am carrying a broken sword, right? Um, but the time is near when it shall be forged anew. In other words, uh, I wonder if Sam is sort of wide-eyed and silent here because he sees he's in one of those stories, but it's the wrong kind of story, right? He was thinking of, you know, like spy stories, right? Adventure stories. Um, This is like one of the great stories that he's in, right? That this guy who looked like a rascal and like one of those villains that you got to watch out for because like, you know, he, he, he mistook him for, uh, for, for Iago, or like I said, one of those, uh, one of those, you know, over clever villains, you know, from, uh, 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 you know, from, from, from certain old plays or something like that. Um, he's mistake. He mistook him for that kind of villain, right? Thinking that he was in that kind of story. And instead, all of a sudden, this guy that he was mistaking for that kind of villain is now revealed to be like the hero of one of those other stories that Sam also really likes. Um, And uh, that's... um, I... I, I I would think that would be something that would strike Sam to silence too. Now we know that he's also I forget who is it was saying is you know is 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 Sam being simply mulish. Um, I, I think quite 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 possibly. Quite, Fourth Dauntless was saying that. Um, I'm not saying there's no element of mulishness here. Um, However, you know, I think you know Frodo's going to give Sam credit for mulishness on this point later on. Um, but uh, but anyway, I certainly think uh, uh, there's there's also an element of simple one awe and wonder that Sam has here. Uh, again, I think that the mythic status. That you know the mythic pose that Aragorn has just struck, and the mythical status of his broken sword that he carries, which is in a poem that Gandalf recited, right about the broken sword, and then he's shown him the broken sword. Him personally, not much use is it, Sam, right? Uh, and then prophesied that the time is near when it shall be forged anew, and you know the things in that poem are going to come true. I, Sam is the last person in the group to turn a deaf ear to all of that, right? I can't believe that of Sam. Um, not Mr. Uh, sailing, 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 right? Not Mr. Elves, sir, right? No, I don't think so, right? I think that Sam um, Sam feels it. Now, he may feel the awe that he feels, uh, uh, you know, about what he sees going on about him may be still at war with that uh, sort of, you know, Hobbit-ish mulishness that he is certainly uh, still uh, um, still feeling. Um, you know, I, I think he's probably not unconflicted about this. But again, I can't think that Sam is untouched, is unimpressed by the myth that he finds himself uh, suddenly in the middle of here. Um, and yet, Matt, you're right. Uh, Sam is pretty good at keeping his counsel at moments like this. Remember, we were talking about how quiet Sam is at the house of Tom Bombadil, 
right? Uh, there's a pretty high correlation between Sam being strongly impacted by the things around him and Sam shutting up, right? He's not a chatterbox when he is uh, responding to things, uh, generally. Um, that seems to be a kind of a trend uh, that we can see. So, um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Forthalos, great point. Uh, Forthalos says, it just occurred to me that Sam should have heard of the broken sword before he knows the story of Gilgalad. Yeah, he's memorized the story of Gilgalad uh, and uh, uh, and the death of him and Oendil, right, in uh, uh, in the battle. Um, maybe he's, you know, as he's looking at this sword that uh, uh, Aragorn is holding out to him, you're right, it is not impossible that Sam is sitting there literally remembering the story of Gilgalad and Elendil and think and and perhaps more than any of them understanding what that is that Aragorn is holding in his hands right there like OMG right that is the sword that Bilbo taught me that poem about right um that's amazing and again I, again I, I can't imagine that Sam um misses that. I would expect him to get that more than sooner than any of the rest of them. Okay. All right. Now let's do, let's do at least one more. Well, said Strider with Sam's permission, we will call that settled. Strider shall be your guide. And now I think it is time you went to bed and took what rest you can. We shall have a rough road tomorrow. Even if we are allowed to leave Bree unhindered, we can hardly hope now to leave it unnoticed. But I shall try to get lost as soon as possible. I know one or two ways out of Breeland other than the main road. If once we shake off the pursuit, I shall make for Weathertop. Weathertop? said Sam. What's that? It's a hill, just to the north of the road, about halfway from here to Rivendell. It commands a wide view all round, and there we shall have a chance to look about us. Gandalf will make for that point if he follows us. After Weathertop, our journey will become more difficult, and we shall have to choose between various dangers. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Lincoln, uh, with Sam's permission, is kind of cute there, right? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he's not going to wait for Sam to speak, right? Um, yeah. Okay. So, what do, you know, what do you think about Strider's plan here? Right, so he's okay. We'll call that settled. Strider shall be your guide. Right, he's back to speaking in the third person about himself. And notice again, we were talking about this. Um, we were talking about this last time. We were talking about the third person thing, right? Um, that he seems to. I I think that there is a correlation between his use of the third person and his allusion to his um his allusion to his cover, right? There is a sense of course in which Strider the Ranger is a different person that he's referring to, right? His persona in Bree. Um Strider shall be your guide. Is there a sense there of, yes, exactly, Mad Violin, it's just what I was thinking of. Uh, Strider is the character he will wear as they leave Bree um, to protect the identity of Aragorn. Um, I do hear in that sentence an element of, just like Frodo said before, don't forget that the name of, of, of Baggins is not to be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill, right? Um, 
is this, you know, and don't forget the name of Aragorn is not to be mentioned. I am Strider as we are leaving Bree. Um, I think that, you know, yes. So Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is not going to be your guide. Strider, the ranger, is going to be your guide, right? Let's make sure we're all on the same page here. Um, yeah, absolutely. And of course, we see that. Right, that's as they're walking out of town, and and Bill Fernie is mocking them. We're going to see it's Strider the Ranger uh, who is leading them. Um, okay, um, now, so what's his plan? Um, he is hoping they're going to be able to leave Bree unhindered, though he's not a hundred percent sure that that's going to be the case. Um, he thinks it's more or less impossible that they're going to leave it unnoticed. Right, I mean the whole whole table dancing thing. We're we're past the unnoticed possibility here, right? So he's going to lead them out and get them lost as soon as possible. Um, and yet he is going to make for Weathertop, right? They're going to uh, why? Why is he going to? Um, why is he going to take them? to Weathertop. Um, He explains, Weathertop commands a wide view all around, and there we shall have a chance to look about us. Um, That's his first reason. And then he talks about Gandalf making for that point if he follows them. Um, One interesting point here to me, of course, in retrospect, going to Weathertop isn't going to be a very good call, right? Um, By taking them to Weathertop, he's going to lead them into danger. And he's going to realize that after they get there. Um, It is therefore interesting to me um, that he... It's interesting to me that he... Uh, makes uh, this is a mistake, right? Pure and simple. This is going to end up being a mistake. Um, I'm interested to see why he makes this mistake, but of course we need to observe first that he does make a mistake, and that's kind of interesting to me, right? Um, Aragorn is not. Perfect. He is. He is. He is their guide, right? He is going. He's willing to sacrifice his life to protect them. Frodo is going to say, you know, they would never have made it to Rivendell without him, and yet he's going to almost fail at his job, right? Um, and that's uh, that's to me kind of interesting. He wants to look about them. He wants to be able to see what if they're being pursued by the Black Riders, by anybody else, right? Um, he, I mean, normally it would make sense to make for Weathertop, right? But under these circumstances, Aragorn has a lot of experience. How many times has he been in this situation, right? Is he more used to being the hunter than the prey? 
you know, I don't know. Has he, is he under is he underestimating the black riders? Does he not fear them enough? In fact, as it turns out, um, yeah, uh, and, uh, both Tony Meade and uh, Fourth Dauntless are uh, remembering that. Uh, of course, he's going to question his own decision making later on, right? Um, and Fourth Dauntless points out that it's kind of similar to the choice he makes at Parth Galen um, when he chooses to go up on Hen in order to get information, in order to see what's going on. Um, that does seem to be a... I don't know if I'd call it a shortcoming exactly, but there is a bit of a trend there, right? He's willing to take risks in order to get information, right? In order to know uh, in order to look about him and see what's going on. Um, and that's interesting. So Tiber's asking me, what's the better destination other than Weathertop? Um, the bush, <laughs> basically, like the rough, uh, wherever they're le- least likely to be. You know, he knows a couple ways out of Breetown uh, other than the main road. Um, does he know a couple paths around, we- you know, uh, he should be afraid of Weathertop, right? That other people can use it to look about them, right? Uh, so uh, maybe uh, taking a, a, a wide uh, uh, circuit around Weathertop to stay out of sight from Weathertop might have been uh, might have been a better plan. Oh, good. Gladys Rabbit is pointing out, of course, how he's using the Palantir, too. You, now, of course, the pa- using the Palantir isn't just to get information, um, but um, uh, but yeah, no. There's the, we, we can see we, we we can see his willingness to take risks in that way again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Mungli, I agree. He's more used to having rangers as his companions and not shepherding comparatively helpless people. Uh, yes, yes. Um, but, um, okay, Matthew was just saying the same thing, too, about the Palantir. Um, yes, yes. Anyway, sorry. Um, I don't know. All we can say... Um, and I do think that it is an interesting point about the about the about the information. Fourth thoughts, what you what you were saying about the parallel with Amon Hen. Um, that's the reason that he gives. Why does he want to go to Weathertop? Uh, he wants to go to Weathertop because he wants to be able. He doesn't want to go blind. He doesn't want to wander blind um, through the through the woods, right? Uh, when he might have a chance of looking around, seeing how close is the pursuit, is there anybody else chasing them? Um, and there's a chance that they might meet Gandalf. That's the second option. But that one is a little feeble, right? As he is also going to admit later on. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, good. I'm going to stop there because I'm running late now. Um, so we will, um, um, we'll 
we'll continue from here next time. We're getting close, right? We've just gotta we've just gotta get Mary coming back, get Mary's story, and then set up for waiting out the night. We are super close to the end of chapter ten now. Um, we finally come almost to the end of their discussion with Strider here, so uh, we're uh, we're definitely coming down in the home stretch of chapter 10. So, uh, but I am, I will stop the, the, the book discussion now it's field trip time. Uh, so if those of you who want to join us to do our, our close reading and discussion of the adaptation of the story in the Lotro game and landscape, uh, please do switch over to twitch.tv slash Signum uh, and join us as we go back up to Angmar here. So, um, Oh, Lincoln, we are totally going to read chapter 11 by June. No question. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's so going to happen. All right. Um, so anyway, so going to say goodbye to those of you who have joined us on Twitch. Thanks very much uh, uh, for joining with us. And uh, or not on Twitch, on Twitter. I keep making this mistake on Twitter. Uh, so uh, I'll say goodbye to the Twitter folks. Good night. All right. And now we're going to switch over. Field trip time. Uh, we're on Crick Hollow server here this evening. And we are getting ready to go here. So we're going to head back up to Angmar. Um, I said Crick Hollow. Did I say Crick Hollow? I think I said Crick Hollow. Yes, Crick Hollow. Okay, yeah, good. You said All it. Right. I was afraid I said the wrong thing. Okay. All right. Are you ready? So we're going to go. I think we're just going to do, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to head up to Algaier again. Um, uh, via Esteldeen. I think that's the fastest way. So off we Hi, go. Hi, everybody. This is Valori here. I'm on his Kofi tonight. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, yeah. No, I remember the minute you said pointed stick, I heard Eric Idle and his whale shucks <laughs> and going, what about pointed sticks? <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So that's how an elf would say it, according to Tolkien. <laughs> He's building his painted sticks. All right. Oh, it's raining. Turn down the graphics. So we're going to go to Esteldin and then take a horse over to Angmar. Yes. Oh, here. Someday we will be in a part of Angmar that we can quick travel to. But it, but it is not this day. <laughs> Greetings. Actually, most of the, we're going to start getting to places we can only hike to. Yeah. Unless we've unlocked certain quests. Yeah, very true. So, boy, Strider sure likes this rascal persona. He seems to just really revel in it, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, uh, I, I, it, it is interesting how that that moment when he uh, sort of laughs at himself there, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like the full rascal persona, but but you can see that it's it's uh, it's still kind of like it, right? I mean, it's 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 like that kind of attitude sort of comes out, you know. Oh, that, that sense of humor just took me so aback when I was a kid. I was used to all the the heroes being so heroic all the time. The idea that one would laugh at himself and say, yeah, I'm ugly. (laughs) Right, right. It was just so unheard of. (laughs) 
I wasn't quite sure what to make of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I've always I've always loved that line for that reason, um, mm-hmm. especially since you know the way that he that he picks up on. I mean, Frodo wasn't trying to imply that. You know, he, was, he wasn't <laughs> saying I think you're ugly or something. He's, uh, you know, Frodo or, or, kind of was saying it in the most British way possible. Well, yeah, but I, I, but I think <laughs> it genuinely wasn't his intention. I mean, that's kind of the funny thing is that he sort of seized on what Frodo has said, right? And of course, yeah. it's true that like what Frodo said does imply that, right? That he looks foul and mm-hmm. feels fair. Um, but of course, what Frodo said was perfectly, you know, sort of kind of normal and acceptable, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's just talking about servants of the enemy. So here's Frodo still speaking in this kind of epic um, mm-hmm. register, right? Um, yes. About, uh, you know, looking f- uh, uh, fair and feeling foul. Even the alliteration <laughs> like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it nonsense, yes. Right, exactly. Uh, and then here is uh, uh, Strider pointing out the... Uh, uh, doubtless unforeseen by Frodo corollary to the statement that he's just made. <laughs> it's, it's the unflattering like he corollary. Waiting. He was waiting for the chance for that one. <laughs> yeah. He's so uh, self-depreciating. It's kind of funny. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and you, you wonder how you, you know, what kind of self-esteem wise, how, how hard would that have been to be the one human in all of Rivendell, you know? Everyone's just <laughs> right. like... What is it's, it's it's a pimple? Oh God! What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and and the way in which he does seem to be uh, quite cheerfully in in some ways adopting the persona. I mean, we talked about how in some ways the persona of Strider is you know is a bit of a sacrifice for him, but he does mm-hmm. really seem to enjoy it. I mean, you don't get the sense that he's really much uh, uh, much alarmed at all. Um, it, it- if anything, like especially as a kid, I was kind of sorry he had to give up the mantle of Strider. He seemed to have such fun doing it. Now he has to be a stodgy old stuffy king. Yeah, I couldn't help but remember the line when uh, uh, at Isengard, right when he uh, when he kicks his he kicks back and uh, lights up his pipe and and starts smoking, and uh, you mm-hmm. know, and Merry and Pippin are like, "Hey, look, Strider the Ranger is back!" Right. Um, yeah. And then of course he gives this super serious response uh, at, at that point. Um, but yet again, it's kind of a it's kind of a fun reminder, right? That like he mm-hmm. he has he is still Strider, and they still call him Strider. Um, but he has sort of dropped that persona, right? He's not had that Strider persona. Um, you know, they're remembering the Strider the Ranger persona that he spoke of in the third person, right yeah. after when when he met them in. Uh, in Brie. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, it, it definitely is something that he does uh, kind of leave behind. And the, the, the last sort of fun reminder I, 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 I have of that is the, you know, the, the cognitive dissonance that Butterbur has because he mm-hmm. only thinks of him right in the persona of Strider, the Ranger, and he just can't, yeah. You know, him with a crown and a golden cup, right? He just, you know, he's got these images that he associates with kingship and he has his mental picture of Strider the Ranger and he just can't, he just can't he, he marry them. He must look like, like a guy at, 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 like a feast of fool's party or something exactly. like that. Exactly. He's, 
He's clearly imagining Strider the Ranger adopting the fake persona of King, right? Like, like he's managed to. Yeah, I don't even know what Butterbur suspects exactly. You know, has he has he pulled the wool over the eyes of the you know of everybody? At the very least, he's got to think he looks kind of ridiculous. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, So anyway, no, I think that that's 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 it's all kind of fun thinking about the Strider persona uh, in as concrete a way as uh, Aragorn keeps referring to it. I think that uh, that that's been something that's been really fun uh, for me in thinking about um, his use of the third person in those moments. I think that's been been really fun and and instructive. Anyway, all right. So where are we at? Let's head out. I think we're here. Well, I know we're here. Um, Most of us are here. Mm -hmm. We're ready to go. Okay, so let's let's head out. Uh, Let's see. We're going to go to that weird little village. Yeah, so... Yeah, let's see. Let's. What's the fastest way across? We'll go this way. Yeah, this way. This is the way I was looking for. Okay, so we're gonna go out, and I want to explore so that we explored the sort of southern reaches here. Uh Um, I want to go up. From here, we were looking. Of course, it's a rainy night, so we can barely see anything yeah. off in the distance. But um, oh, the sky's all purple now. Little purple lightning ooh, streaks through yeah, everything. The purple lightning streaks, which were like green before. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's head up. Um, okay. Oh, here we got some of those Sasquatches that they have here. Mm-hmm. Those are clearly ape men, right? Yep. They are the lesser red yetis. They do have. They do have language, right? They do speak. I don't, don't they, think so. Don't they? How do they know no. the names of those? Like in their lairs, right up not far mm-hmm. from here, just to the northwest of where we are. Um, I'm assuming it's our Harren, uh, you know, lore. Okay, but they don't ever speak? I couldn't remember if they spoke or not. No, they don't ever speak. The names they have, we assume, are given to them by the other tribesmen. Okay, okay. All right. Just wanted to double-check that. All right, and here's Phylacro, which Mm -hmm. we saw last time. And over there is the... Encampment where we saw them capturing fell spirits and whatnot. We can see the many sort of terraces of the this old fortification, which still seemed to be more of a fortification and less of a residence uh, mm-hmm. last time. But now let's continue on up to the north and see what we find. Uh as we continue to move towards what looked like a larger structure or town, we can't see. I was wanting to see if we could see Doom because we were seeing Doom from a distance before, weren't we? Yep. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. Emergency, we have a new banner. Okay, so this is a blue banner. Oh, good. Give me time to kill this guy who's trying to kill me. <laughs> With the Iron Crown thing. Um, I love how the Iron Crown 
here kind of looks like like the slashes of a claw, right? Yeah. Um, you know how this looks like a claw, but it also looks like a skeletal hand, kind of, and it also looks like the slash marks of uh, of 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 somebody's claws. That's all kind of interesting. And the rest of it is smudges. I remember looking at this for a long time, trying to figure out if there were any actual other figures. This was while I was still using lower graphics, and then on high resolution, it's pretty clear that those are just stains. Uh, I think it's just the one symbol there in the middle. Okay. Uh, anyway, let's see. Where are we? How close are we? All right, we're getting there. Yep, yep, yep. So this these banners just lead to an orc camp, right? Mm-hmm. That so, cave over there. Right, because this is an orc. These are orc banners, right? Borzum mm-hmm. Pushtug. Yeah. Right. Okay. They really are good at making. Uh, why are these orcs dancing? Well, they were. Uh, they were just like line dancing over there next to the fire. Actually, that's the retail shuffle. I, I'm familiar with this. That's okay. the whole year. The boss makes you stand because sitting looks unprofessional. Ah, so right. So keep... you shift your weight from one foot to another in order to. You know, yeah. Okay. That's what it looked like. That's probably what it was. All right. Boss says stand to attention. They got to do it. <laughs> okay. So where am I pointed? Uh, not quite at Karn Doom, so I don't think that's what that is. Besides, anyway, today is a terrible time to be trying to see distances. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's another one of those spiky things in kind of the middle of nowhere. Are they supposed to be... It looks like buttresses, I swear. <laughs> I know it does, but it can't be buttresses, because we keep finding them in the middle of nowhere, like, without any other ruins even around them. Uh, well, I'm I mean, not sure what it would be otherwise, unless it's the cornerstone of something. Or it could it just be a marker? Like, something you're supposed to see from a distance? Could be. Maybe. Some kind of... I doubt it would be something like a mile marker, but... Something of that kind. What's, uh... Do you think that the things dangling here are prizes from the... the I, I forget, the, the Trave Galorg? Could be. Um, yeah, we've seen those pretty much consistently on every, uh, every poll out there. Yeah. Okay, the ruins here, very... M- Still very consistent with the ruins that we saw down all the way leading up, yeah. but these are different. Oh, they got way more iron sort yes. of sh- housing on them. Right, so we had these iron corners, right, mm-hmm. uh, on the towers that we've been seeing, and now not only... So it it we- does imply that that middle bit is something that might have fallen away later. Maybe. Like, maybe these are better maintained? I don't know. Even the stone looks different. Yeah. Oh, it does look different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see it now that I'm closer. Oh, look at all the algae and mold and yeah, junk. Yeah, exactly. We've got all this growth here, right? Which is yeah. interesting in itself. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's got, uh, right, the putrid growth that feed on rottenness. So that's something. Anyway, 
Um, One of the few things that grow around here, I suppose. Exactly. Though we just passed fields, right? There's agriculture happening here, too. Right? Yeah, uh, right yeah. here. So we do get some, because we got this, you know, these plants, and now these crops don't look like, you know, much to brag about, of course. Um, no. But we do have some fields to, so that we show that we're not living in a complete waste. Um, what do you think would grow here? Beans? I, I think know, beans maybe. might be the only thing that would grow out here because yeah, they like pretty nasty soil. It is not very good soil. It does not seem. Okay. I think most of us are going to have to continue on foot from here. Right. Okay. We can we can dismount so that uh, cause people are – I know people are going to have to fight their way and hang on. Oh, someone, this guy's doing a good job. Okay. So we can see more things around here. I thought here. there might be a carving in here, but I, I think not. I think it's just cracks. Though there's something yeah. clearly up here in the middle. Up uh, That's definitely a carving, but I can't make out any real details sword. here. Looks like a sword, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Hard to see. Maybe we'll get... Okay, and then inside, right. here we are. Our first view of... These Tudor right, style it doesn't houses look, doesn't look like a sword. Actually, it just looks like a crack in a building. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've seen a couple in a couple places things that looked like they might be carvings, but are but are just cracks. It, the the yeah, there's cracks uh, along the building indicating that some of the structures fracturing. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe plaster that's fallen off. But anyway, so we've got these. But these buildings, right? Which yeah, look just like Breetown. Yeah. Uh, so this Evil is the same Bree. style as Breetown, which is really interesting, right? Because they... Uh, so notice the the claim that the game is implicitly making here, right? They're implicitly... Because remember, we had that whole discussion about Bree and how the, the Breelanders have been here forever and all that, right? And Rudar, and um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, the the game seems to be suggesting that the Breelanders are related to the hillmen who swore allegiance to Angmar, right? Um, or that, if not related, they had a shared culture. Yeah, yeah, to some extent. Um, and it's interesting because, well, I would say related, though, because they're geographically separated, right? If we look, uh, if we look, where are we? Let's see. Let's go look at the map and let's move out from Angmar. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the Breelanders here, right? And so they've lived mm -hmm. here, time out of mind, right, uh, by Bree Hill and surrounding areas. The hillmen who came in to mingle with the, with the Numenorean Rudaurans and then mm -hmm. to swear fealty to Angmar. They were all way up here, like in the, in the north of the North Downs and in the hills by Angmar, maybe down as far as like into the Trollshaws and stuff. We see some of their culture. Well, we see some of them, some of the descendants of Rudaur, uh, down in the Lone Lands, but I'm not really sure that that was necessarily the sort of the homeland of these hillmen before they mixed with the Rudarans, right? Because that's yeah. what I think we're being invited to 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 see here. 
Um, we know that the Numenorians interacted with the indigenous peoples of Middle Earth in different ways and connected with them and mingled with them. We see that happening down in Gondor a lot, right? With the people in the mountains and the people in the coastlands, mm-hmm. not to mention the Rohirrim. But um, up here, we have also this other set or multiple sets um, of comparatively indigenous peoples, that is, peoples who have been here in Eriador much longer than the Numenorians while they were off in Numenor. The Brelanders are kind of the primary example that we're given of this. We don't meet or interact in the story with anybody else who is sort of part of these indigenous people groups, but the Hillmen who joined with Rudaur and who swore allegiance to Angmar um, are what are clearly another example of those same kinds of people yeah that we get from the stories and so i love the fact that they and it seems plausible right it seems plausible sure. that you know whatever happened to them in the interim right they've changed a great deal the people of breed don't really look or act culturally much like the trave galorg for instance right um, yeah and yet we do get this implication or that, you know, the game has seemed to imply through the architecture of their buildings here that there are some cultural, some, some, uh, they, they share cultural roots, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Although these houses would have had to have fallen down and been replaced a couple of hundred times in like the 3,000 plus years well, exactly. involved here. These are just wooden plaster. They wouldn't hang us. Yeah. They wouldn't take the punishment that these stone walls are taking. Right, exactly. And certainly they would be unlikely to last the... I mean, it's been how long since the fall of Angmar, right? Uh, wow. At least a thousand years. It's been a long time. It's been centuries, yeah. if not... I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not remembering my dates now, but I think it's been a thousand years since the fall mm-hmm. of Angmar. Um, uh... Yeah, somebody look it up. Somebody look up uh, in the Tale of Years and and <laughs> remind me of the dates because I'm forgetting them. Um, but yeah, there's a reason. Well, apart from the fire of 1666, there's a reason there's not many houses like this left in England. Right. Exactly. And 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 even those though. I mean, you talk about like authentic Tudor buildings are only 500 mm-hmm. years old. Um, mm-hmm. They're you know. terrible shape. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, no, I totally think that. But that's what's so cool about this, right? So I think what we're looking at here is an old ruin, right? And and not so ruinous either. They, like, these towers are in good shape. The walls are cracky and stuff. But, you know, like, this is, uh, this is not a tumble-down ruin. No, it's probably worse you got is black mold. Right, exactly. And there is plenty of mold and stuff, apparently. But, you know... Um, <laughs> You can live with it, especially if you're evil. So they, um, they, I guess you just lowers your hygienic standards or something. I don't really know. But um, anyway, the the point is here they have this this ruin. Ah, Third Age, 1975. Thank you so much, Commander. Oh uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, that's for, and so right. We're talking about more than a thousand years. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so Angmar fell more than a thousand years ago. What we're seeing here are people who built up a new town inside the ruins of old Angmar, right? So presumably these Uh people are descendants of the hillmen who swore their allegiance to Angmar. Angmar is no more, right? Angmar had fallen 
uh, and um, it it fell and and didn't look like it was going to get up again. Uh, <laughs> but the descendants of those hillmen remained in this area in this region, and they build houses. You know, they build a new and they've built a town uh, here in the last however long. These don't look like new buildings, but, you know, let's say yeah. the last couple hundred years, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, building and maintaining this new town within on the old structure. Um, was this even a Hillman town before? You know, were these, you know... Uh, these don't... It doesn't look like Hillman, though. No, it doesn't. I mean, that that even, you know, all the places where we can see these sort of wooden houses standing right next to the stone, they don't really look like they fit, right? I, I can't yeah, imagine. Check out this door right here. This totally doesn't fit with the rest of the architecture. Oh, yeah, that is absolutely true. Who was responsible for This looks like it was door? pillaged off of, like, a fortress door or something. Yeah, they got, like, a prefab door for this, uh, this like, house. That looks nice. I'll stick it on the home. Yeah, that is a, that is a little strange. Anyway, so the point is... Notice, like, sort of the way that this whole, uh, the way that this whole story, um, seems to kind of unfold, right? Just by looking around at this town, we can see, okay, so this was a fortress of Angmar in the old days. Then Angmar fell, this, you know, sort of kingdom or empire that, uh, these peoples had aligned themselves with. Their descendants are living on in the shell of the old um, of the old stronghold, so they have built up this new town. But now, Angmar in the game, Angmar has returned, right? Yeah. And so now they are, so now like we have, for instance, over here, this banner, right? This is an orc banner. We've seen yes. banners like that. We're just looking at one which is very similar to this. So here we have now an orc banner being thrown up here in the town with skulls hanging on it in place of the... Uh, and we still have like this one string of, you know, kind of decorations that looks like it would be, you know, a hillman trophies, but then hung around mm-hmm. the rest of the way with skulls like the orcs and goblins do um, yeah, with definitely. their banners and trophies. Uh- Look, the windows are all boarded up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. This metal is so weird. It's almost like rainbow-hued. It's got purples and greens in it, like some sort of yeah. fluorite or something. It is really complex, the colors that you can see. And again, it would be nice if it were sunny. But of course, it's Angmar, so you can't expect blue skies and it's, lovely it's, weather. It's almost like patinaed brass or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, like brass brass that's been touched a lot by like greasy hands has that weird purple green look to it yeah and notice by the way so like that little arch tunnel that we just passed through um presumably that would have been a choke point and a fortification uh, you know like a gate somewhere in here. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly but there's no gate it's because again this this is no longer with the town in it doesn't seem to be any longer really intent on uh um uh-huh. Uh, on being a defensive fortification, they're just living here, and yet now they are being—they've come once again, a second time, under the influence of Angmar, as Angmar has uh-huh. risen again, and we're seeing these guys, right? The the ones that you guys are fighting right now, um, Duver Duverdine. Yeah, the Duverdine, who who we're seeing are clearly um, uh, descendants of the Hillmen, uh, quite like the Trave Galorg. Um, oh, here's a nice architectural piece. 
Which one? Up on the hill up here? Yeah. Uh, right, right, right in front of me here. Yeah. Pointy. Yeah, yeah. This it's yeah, it's different from the pointy towers and the rest. I don't know what's. Uh, look at the thin thin tracing on everything. That sort of elfin leaf shape again is coming back. Yeah. Art Nouveau? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I don't know that I get it, but it's interesting that we're seeing these kind of artistic touches here, right? In, uh-huh. like, the old Angmarim uh, architecture there. Just like those carved stones, the, the sort of spade-shaped ones that we saw. Yeah, yeah. There's an artistry to it that we're just not seeing with some of these newer... Yeah. Tribes sort of hanging around. Yeah, definitely. And not like those stone walls and towers that we've been seeing ever since we came in, right? All those mm-hmm. other old ruins. Um, these are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and they look older, too, frankly. Um, yes. Like this might have been one of the one of the fortresses of old Angmar. Um, anyway. Um, it, it does make you wonder about those spade shapes. Were they rougher at some point? They've been smoothed down over the centuries. Right. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Tony just made a really cool observation. He was saying uh, um, this town is like the opposite of Bree's relationship with Arnor, right? Bree was already yeah. there and the Arnorians built fort- fortifications around them, but the Angmarim built a new town in an old fortress, right? The, these hillmen have built a new town in an old <laughs> fortress. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and of course, like one of the one of the major differences, of course, is how Angmar was emptied and overthrown, um, mm-hmm. which, although, you know, Arnor deteriorated and eventually was defeated in battle, um, it didn't collapse in the same way that Arnor did. Um, yeah, you, see, you can think that Bree forgot Arnor, where these people were never allowed to forget what Angmar was. Yes, yes. Um, and, and they're and, not they're not thriving like the Brelanders either. All the the windows right. have lights in them, but they're all boarded up. You can yeah you know you can imagine nobody's living with like furniture. They're just making fires wherever they can, that sort of thing. Right, right. Okay. Melee. <laughs> you guys are doing a great job. <laughs> Okay, and if I'm remembering my way through this rather labyrinthine town, we're coming mm-hmm. to the inner... Yes, okay. So now, in here, and we are in sort of the inner part of this town now, right? In here, we just saw our first Angmarim sorcerer dude. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of just Hillman. Which we've been seeing, and then as we uh-huh. go in here, now we finally get something. That right, nobody, to... nobody shoot. Just oh, okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Oh well, it'll respawn soon. The point is, they were Angmarim, not Hillman, right? No, that was the Hillman. No, that guy was the Hillman. Let's see. The woman looked like a Hillman sorcerer. Actually, yeah, that's true. Hey, but look, we have uh, carvings. What is it? Yeah? Let me see. Hang on. An eight-pointed 
thing. Wheel? Yeah, it looks like a wheel. It does look like a wheel. That's weird. Yep, one, two, three, four wheels. The wheels on the walls go round and round. Yeah, yeah there's more over here. More over here. Yeah. Big tomato slices. Hey, it, it looks like um, there were sort of half versions of this on all the tents of the Hillman. Ah, the things that it's like the half uh, the half circle. Remember, I, I called it an orange segment, or yeah. Look, right. you can even see it on these little metal guys. Yes, it's a little different, though. Yeah, it is. It is. This is more of a like a almost like a green, like a growing thing, right? Two, three, four, five. Yeah, the fact that there's eight makes me think it's a chakra, but <laughs> right. Oh, and we got these funny little harpoons over here that looks a bit like what we were calling buttresses before. Uh, oh. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. It's just like huge jagged blades sticking up. This is just like the town of tetanus, isn't it? Yeah, boy, you'd think. Oh, here's more of these little pointed spade dealies. Right and yeah exactly and uh, and of course these banners are not orc banners these are these are uh, this is the du- the Duverdine Duverdine yeah, the, the the Hillman the dragon mo- dragon motif or wyvern yeah, or whatever exactly and now uh, we can go further right yeah let's keep going and these people. These people, these are collaborators, right? I mean, with the good guys, not yeah, their, yeah, their resistance, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, they? yeah. There's some of these. The guys we can't kill are allies. Yeah. Okay, and now we have a combination of Hillman and Iron Crown people. It's a drum. Okay. Yep. Yeah, we've seen them in a lot of the other tents. Yeah. Okay, and... Yep, same same armor rack. Same armor rack, yep. Oh, I never noticed the serrated tips before. That's particularly cruel. Yeah. Learned all about that. Oh, look at this dude. Finally, we've got a troll. Oh, an elite troll. Yep. Yay! New deed, uh, troll slayer. <laughs> an elite troll. Uh huh. And the the story from those um, those allies, right? Those uh, mm-hmm. resistance people, is that mm-hmm. this town is under oppression. Like the hillmen themselves, the hillmen allied to the Angmarim are victims here, right? They're being it, it, they're being oppressed yes. by these it, Angmarim overlords. That's why the ones at O'Hare are the, the holdouts. They're the ones who realize that they're getting a raw deal out of the whole thing and that we right. shouldn't trust these strangers as much. Right, exactly. So we're seeing another phase in the history of the sort of indigenous Angmar culture here, right? Mm-hmm. Again, rise of Angmar, the Hillmen swear allegiance to them, Angmar dies, but the Hillmen persist, 
and they take up residence in the old site here in the old uh, in the old fortress. But then Angmar mm-hmm. rises again and comes back, and they're now an impressive force. They are allied with them again, but allied with them by force. They come in here as taskmasters and and slave drivers. Are we sure the that the that the first time they were getting a good deal out of it, they maybe weren't being used the first time either? Well, I mean that they were being used certainly seems exceptionally likely. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the giant fish hook of death. Yeah, this is. I've seen these at a Numenas. Yes. Under the new regime at a Numenas. I've still yet to figure out whether these... Is this good sculpture or evil sculpture? Well, the the little vine work on there is very good and detailed. Yeah. Very pretty. Not sure what it's supposed to be. I mean, it's not representational. So I don't I'm think not so. Sure. Though, again, it keeps kind of vaguely reminding me of the sort of semi-abstract ship symbol that we mm-hmm. see in even dim all of the place mm-hmm. maybe it's supposed to represent like a point or a tine in the iron crown like every t- everywhere you see one is another tine in the iron crown now i gotta see how many of these are there are in the game but isn't the iron crown black well you know this is well it's not white <laughs> well it's not but the ones I've seen in other places are more of a dark purpley black. Yeah. So I wonder if this is just the surface we're seeing, like it's metal, ref- the the firelights re- reflecting against the metal or something. Now we haven't because seen. I, I could have sworn everywhere I've seen it, it's black. Okay. This one also doesn't have the aura. All the other ones, you have the big sort of deep, you know, right. morale reducing auras on everything. These right. amphoras are funny too. Yeah, I was looking at the amphoras just now, and we've got these weird little two-handed amphoras. Um, What's in them? Are they sacrifices? Well, they're like stoppered. Libations? Oh, maybe they're going to give it that awful aura. Maybe they got to put a spirit in it, like in the right. Watching Stone. Exactly. Because I saw these amphoras at the, at the right side as well. Yeah. And here's the other thing. The banners, which look like orc banners. Um, mm-hmm. But we haven't seen any orcs, just the one troll, right? There he is. Yeah, one. yeah. Maybe they're not orc banners. Maybe they were <laughs> they were issued to the orcs. Um, Who are in service of Angmar. Right. Yeah, because the... the elite enemies that you come in here to defeat are all... Is this a door? We can't... You know, we can't get through this. Nope. It's a blind. Okay. This is the center, right? Is this the inmost part? Um, yeah, pretty much, because we can't go through near the fish hook or anything. Yeah, right. Dead ends. Yeah, proper okay. dead end. Yep. Okay. Middle of the Nautilus. <laughs> yeah, right. 
oh, and I am having flashbacks to how annoying it is to run in and out of this town, having to win your way all the way. It's around. worse when things are trying to kill you. Yeah, it's certainly true. Yeah, it's much worse when you're on level. Um, yeah. Uh, notice here we have another few of these spike things not doing any yep. buttressing, but just kind of. Yeah, now that I see it attached the... to the building, it's definitely just, uh, hey, look, I got a spiky thing. Yeah. Yeah. You think he's compensating for something? <laughs> yeah, though in a different metal than the big central. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's I'm almost always seeing the fish hook in this kind of metal instead of in this sort of, I don't know, almost cheery pewter looking. Well, it is kind of cheery. I find it kind of cheery. I mean, the shape is ugly, and especially the the two bottom sort of spurs, right, that stick out. It, more barbs, more serrated barbs on everything. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and that certainly makes it look unfriendly, and yet... yeah. I agree it's not in, like, the ominous, like, obsidian or anything like that. Yeah, so when we go to Anuminas, we got to check those out and make sure that the metal is different. Because I, I, mm. I feel like the metal was darker in the other versions of the same shape. Okay. All right, so I am hatching a theory. Hmm. Here's my theory. Okay. My theory is that the this stone which you'll notice is different from the old stone see like look over here so we've got the we've got the you know you've got the moldy algae covered old greenish stone yeah over here and then you've got this stone yeah. these blocks which are different of a different kind right yeah okay so my theory is that the algae stone here is the original uh -huh. Angmarim construction. Oh. From back in the day. Whoop! And oh, here no. comes the dude again. Sorry. Hey, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, oh, he yelled posthumously. I love it when they do that. Okay, so, yeah. um, anyway, so the, my theory is that this was the original Angmarim fortification construction. It looks like the oldest stonework. And also notice that it's kind of the the stones are it's it's better right like the stones yeah. are laid more flush it the walls mm -hmm. look really smooth impossible oh, to yeah, climb yeah. whereas like these Greek walls over here much kind of cruder mm -hmm. not only are the blocks not cut as cleanly but they're not laid neatly either some of them are sticking out Mm -hmm. So, sort of weird sizes, sort of shoehorned in. Exactly. So I'm thinking that this now it's still old, as we can tell from those wheel mm -hmm. carvings, right, which look kind of worn mm -hmm. down. Um, that and they're still kind compared of old. to these house bricks over here, which totally look different too. Yes, exactly. So, I think we have sort of three different layers that we can detect here. Uh, mm -hmm. One is the old Angmarim fortification, the algae walls. The second is this new stone construction that we saw here and elsewhere here in the middle of the city, which seems to serve not as a defensive fortification. As you'll notice, these walls are right in front of a big mountain, right? So it's not like anyone's going to be coming down these cliffs and then be bothered by this wall. Um, yeah. 
So rather, this seems to me to be more like, and the whole thing is built like a kind of shrine. And I'm thinking, whereas the big spiky fish hook thing, anchor, whatever it is that's in the middle here, uh, is in a different kind of stone again and looks significantly newer than Mm -hmm. the stone that's around it, right? So I'm thinking we have, like, again, first-generation construction is the Angmarim stone, the Angmarim fortress. Then the hillman, after the fall of Angmar, which was, remember, over more than a thousand years ago, after the fall of Angmar, um, the hillmen stay here, and they build this these stone walls, which are in these two different bays, which are like shrines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With this wheel symbol. So I think this wheel symbol was their symbol. This was like the post Iron Crown uh, uh, like symbology of this Hillman culture. Dynasty. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And so they built these as possibly like totem areas, you know, some kind of worship center here in the middle of the village. Right? And they built it out of stone, um, but they didn't just like you know, cannibalized stone from elsewhere in the fortress or anything to build it here because no. it's different. Um, but then now, and and then after those, we have the wooden town uh, that mm-hmm. gets built up. You know, what was the town? What did what kind of houses did the people who carved you know the wheels on the walls here? Um, you know, what kind of town did they live in? I don't really know. Um, but. Um, Maybe they lived in wood houses, too, or, you know, wooden leather tents or whatever, who knows, like, you know, what we see them doing still in, in Al-Khair. But, uh, but anyway, this new, the, the new wooden construction, this new Tudor-style buildings are, um, would then be like the third wave of building, right? The, the newer generation yeah. of Hillmen that have set up what looks like a fairly thriving town. I mean, this is not mm-hmm. too far off the size of Breetown. In fact, um, you okay. know, from having walked around in it, mm-hmm. but then, Still going to the dog. <laughs> right? But yeah. then, the Angmar returns, right? Yes. And now they take these old shrine spots, and they they're building their new shrines with these mm-hmm. large, new, and deceptively, attractively colored uh, stone statues with may or may not end up being utilized as, uh, you know, um, spots for enshrining fell spirits, spirits and yeah. whatnot, right? Oh, oh, that actually, that actually works with the, how the hook looks different from all the ones in Enumina's. Exactly. Because it's new. Because it's new, so it hasn't patinaed yet. So this might be what the metal looked like when it was first built. And over time, like, yeah. say, a thousand years, it gets that blue, Just what I'm thinking. Enuminous so oh. was taken over, was overrun long before by the old mm-hmm. Angmarim. Right? And it's now mm-hmm. being overrun again by the new Angmarim, but it was overrun by the yep. old Angmarim before. Whereas here, we're now seeing the like the incursion of the new Angmarim and them doing here what they did in Enuminous, right? Mm-hmm. Except instead of to the to Numenorians and the Numenorian, you know, the remnants of Numenor and the ruins of Numenor, they're doing it in the ruins of a culture that has reestablished itself independently in the ruins of Angmar itself. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, 
they oppress and enslave these people and bring the into in order to try to bring them back around to their will. Wow. Yeah, well done. <laughs> so that's my theory. That's my that's yeah. my reading of these nah. runes here. Uh, and I think this is a really f- uh, and and again, this is such a fun story, such a fun way in which, um, again, and this is what I love. This is what I one of the things that I love most about Lotro uh, are the ways in which they sort of fill in the blank spaces and often very suggestively. Right? You know, they don't. Mm-hmm give us huge chunks of prose telling us everything that, that, that happened. Um, they've given us some really interesting things to kind of think about here as we go through yeah, places not, like this. They're good at showing, not telling. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of by taking what we see and then taking the quite few things really that we know um, from the books about, you know, the history of these regions and the people who live in them, um, they kind of put them together into a sort of, you know, that kind of a plausible story. And, you know, am I getting it exactly right? Who knows? You know, probably not, but <laughs> that's okay. And that uh, is Carndoom that I'm looking up at, or at least yeah. the outskirts of Carndoom. Also, speaking as an artist, sometimes I do things not knowing why I do them, and then someone has to point it out to me afterwards, yeah. and I go, oh. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Maybe exactly. that's why I did it. Exactly. And that's what, and that's, you know, Tolkien did that kind of thing all the time, right? You know, to <laughs> just like you you do a thing and then you discover the significance of it after you do it, right? That's that serendipity at the end. <laughs> that's not, uh, that is not a, that is not an artistic weakness or a failure uh, of, uh, you know, foresight or planning as an artist. That is. Uh, no, it. That's when it, you know you're doing something right. Intuition. It implies intuition. Exactly. Exactly. Just like intuition, it's sometimes something you have to analyze later. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I was going to look at the other one too, but I think uh, it's. Um, it's past midnight. Bedtime. Yeah. It's after midnight. So I should let everybody go. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for your patience and standing around and killing all these guys like eight times as we've had these discussions. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to sign off. I hope everybody's okay to, you know, to milestone out of here or something. Uh, I hate to think we were, abandoning people to their deaths here as we if we all just kind of take off here but um uh i'll try to i'll try to escort any low guys back to safety as best <laughs> right. as i can just right. thanks hoping okay. some high level guys stick with me though <laughs> That's right. very good okay so thanks all everybody right. for joining us and we will see you guys next week all right bye, bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.